All right, here we go, everybody. Welcome to episode number 85 of Sports Cards Live. It is Saturday night. Today is March the 13th, 2021. My name is Jeremy Lee, and we've got a great show for you tonight. But before we get to it, I do want to thank last Saturday's guest, Brian Gray, Leaf CEO. Another spectacular episode with Brian. We went for a couple of hours, and if you did not have a chance to catch that, go back and watch it. It is in the Sports Cards Live archives on YouTube. Check it out. What a great show. Always is with Brian. Thanks again to him. Next sat. Oh, I also want to thank Joe Perot. My buddy Joe Perot joined me on After Hours. We had another great show late Saturday night last week, so check that out as well. Next Saturday, my guest will be Tyler Nethercott from Market Movers, the sports card investor tool. He'll be joining me. And on After Hours, later on that night, we've got Rodman Martinez, one of the best Michael Jordan collectors out there. I'm really excited to have Rodman on the show. He'll be live from Honduras. That will be pretty awesome. I want to welcome all new viewers. We just passed 2,400 subscribers on YouTube. I want to thank each and every one of you for that. On our way to 2,500 what a milestone that will be. I want to shout out the Big Three Hockey. Thank them for supporting the channel. Check them out on Instagram. They do showcase the finest singles in the hobby. I also want to show, shout out the Basketball Card Fanatic magazine. If you are not yet subscribing to that, give it a shot. Reach out to the Real 27 guy on Instagram. And later on in the show, I will put the uh, information on the ticker. I also want to shout out the guys, the, the ladies and gentlemen who listen to this show on podcast format. Really appreciate you guys. Uh, you know, we just passed 20,000 downloads on podcast. That's pretty cool. Each episode is getting 600 to 900 plays. So I want to thank all of you for listening to the show during the week on the podcast. As always, guys, tonight, your comments and your questions will be in play. I also want to mention that there is no after hours at this point scheduled for tonight. So we may or may not do it. We'll see how I'm feeling at the end of the show. If, uh, if I'm still up for another hour or so of uh, live broadcasting, we will definitely do that and figure out what the format for that will be. Okay, let's go ahead and get to tonight's guest. He is a repeat guest on the show. He was last with us on June the 27th, episode 23. He's back tonight. He started collecting in 1986 when he decided to collect Michael Jordan. Sorry, he decided to collect Dwight Gooden instead of Michael Jordan. We'll find out later if he regrets that decision. He left the hobby in 1997 after the Major League Baseball strike. He came back in 2006 when his kids were born so he could buy them birth year sets. His favorite team is the Chicago Bulls. His favorite athlete is Michael Jordan. He's born in St. Louis. He grew up in with stops in, uh, in New Orleans and Chicago back in St. Louis, Missouri right now. Let's bring him out. Here we go. Paul Lesko, welcome to episode 85 of Sports Cards Live. How are you doing tonight, man? Doing great. Thanks for having me back. It is it is my pleasure. So as I just mentioned, you were back. You were on with me June the twenty seventh, just about nine months ago. And as we were just talking, doesn't feel like it's been nine months. I, I'm looking at you right now. It almost feels like it could have been last week. But boy, <laughs> those nine months went by pretty quickly. The hobby yeah. has come a long way. We're going to talk about some of that. But really, we are. You know, you are an attorney. You follow the legal happenings of the hobby very closely and that's why we're having you on because you're going to give us an update so um should we jump right in yeah let's do it all right let's let's jump right in so uh you know before we do paul before we do let's just say hello to the the chat we got people here already we got hockey guy pregame in this one i saw you in there earlier 
Hockey guy, great to have you. Same with you, Hockey Cod. Welcome back to the show. My man Justin Bode is out there. Welcome to the show, Justin. We got Rocco Rosado. He says, hi, crew. Let's seat the jury. The judge is in the house with Paul and Jeremy. What will be the verdict? Be great show. Love it, Rocco. Welcome nice. to the show. Welcome to the show. Justin, no, you do not get paid for this. This is volunteer uh, only, but it's mandatory. It is mandatory. It's your civic duty, though. It's your civic duty. Good evening to you, Yannick. Jeff McMahon, great to have you back. Sports card 613, hello to you. We got Terry Fortune in the house. Terry is currently, and probably right till the end, is winning the Sports Cards Live Yahoo Fantasy Hockey Draft. Congratulations so far to you, Terry. I've never seen someone work the work the waiver system quite like he does. Anonymous Facebook user, hola to you, back to you. Frank Ostella, good evening. Happy to have you back. We got Dennis in the house. We got BT Sports Cards. Says great diversity with your guests. Looking forward to this perspective tonight. Thank you, BT. Thank you so much, Jeremy Pringle in the house. Good evening, YYC. We got my man Daniel. Oh, we got Lowell Ahe in the house. Welcome. We got Jake, 90s V ball cards. Whoa, we got lots of you guys. We got Bill Webber too. Welcome to the show. Lee Haskins is here. Mike Truman, Kurt Renault, Brent Criswell, Eric S. Latrell Sprewell, the American dream in the house. What's good? What's good with you, Latrell? What's good with you? We got John Falk. Paul is one of my favorite follows on Twitter. Well, that's nice to know. Welcome Thanks. to the show, John Falk. Great to have you. EMC he probably follows seven, seven people. <laughs> he only probably follows seven people. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You're one of half a dozen people he follows, Paul. I kid, I kid. <laughs> EMC7 says, HGA saved the hobby, in my opinion. A little, uh, Maybe a little bit early to make that claim, EMC7, but I'd love to hear your perspective on that. Interesting comment for sure. Sam in the house. Good evening, Sam. Bobby Baseball. Rich Klein, hobby stalwart in the house, says, since Paul is an attorney, I can guarantee he is far more loquacious than I'll ever be. I love it. We're bringing back the loquaciousness to the show. It's been a while. Welcome to the show, Rich. We got Bobby Burrell, right where I want you, Bobby, on the show. Thank you so much for being here. My man, Joe Perot, who was my guest on last week's After Hours. We got Mike Zier. We got Paul Ka Paul Cashman. We got Frank Cote. We got Colin Murray. Welcome, everybody. All right. It's an accomplishment now, Paul, for me to get to the bottom of the comments so I can kind of rest and not uh, not feel like I'm missing anything. It's but a packed house. <laughs> yeah, we got we got great viewership already. The since you were last on, the viewership has has uh, built up and grown. I'm really happy with that. So, all right, man, let's jump in. We've got we've got about nine or ten uh, topics, cases, uh, actions, or I guess you could say that we're going to, we're going to speak of. So I'll introduce the first one and you take it away and fill everybody in on what's the, what's the story behind the case and where are things at with it. So the first one is the upper deck versus Panini, Michael Jordan in the background. We talked about it last time you were on, but there's some updates. So, uh, and why don't you set the stage and explain what the case was, what the problem was with this, uh, with this MJ in the background. Yeah, this was my favorite lawsuit of uh, 2020. Uh, it involved, uh, you know, as everybody knows, uh, Upper Deck has the uh, exclusive right to make cards with Michael Jordan on there. Uh, Panini, on the other hand, has the uh, NBA exclusive. So because of that, we have not seen uh, Michael Jordan cards with uh, him in a Bulls uniform in a long time. Uh, in 2020, uh, Panini filed a lawsuit, or UD filed a lawsuit against Panini because uh, in the background of two cards, uh, you could, if you look, you could see Michael Jordan. One of them was a card of Scottie Pippen, and in order to find Michael Jordan, he's really tiny in the corner. I mean, it's it's whoever found that, you know, power to him for finding him. Uh, the other card was a Dennis Rodman, and it, you can, you know, see a little bit more of Michael Jordan. 
in that card. But they're not cards of Michael Jordan. It's just he's happens to be in the background of a live action shot. So Upper Deck filed a lawsuit against Panini. And it's been going on uh, for about it's about it's about to have its birthday, I guess, right now. So the lawsuit really hasn't got gotten too far. Uh, we're uh, they're in discovery. They're exchanging documents. And because of that, uh, apparently Panini got a hold of uh, Upper Deck's license with Michael Jordan. They're going to get it anyway. Uh, and they say that there's problems with that license. They don't believe that Upper Deck has the right to sue Panini. Because really, uh, in the lawsuit where Upper Deck is suing Panini for having Michael Jordan in the card, it's not Upper Deck's rights that are being violated. It's Michael Jordan's rights, because only Michael Jordan has the ability to grant people permission to put him in cards. So Upper Deck is kind of stepping in the shoes of Jordan to bring this lawsuit. Uh, but Panini says, the license does not allow them to do it. The license, all it does is says, hey, Upper Deck, you can use my likeness in cards, but it doesn't have that next step, that and if anybody else puts a card out there with me in it, you can sue. They say that's not there. Now, normally, if it comes to issues like that, I'd go through the filings and look at what's there, but Upper Deck has not produced the license publicly. It's been filed under seal in the case. So uh, I've posted some of the arguments online for people to look at, and it's more redacted than, you know, UFO documents released from the UFO from the U.S. government. I mean, there's like page after page just totally blocked out. So which is kind of funny because if the license, you know, Upper Deck says we have the license and we can sue. So it sounds like there should be a paragraph that you've already told everybody what this paragraph says, well, let it go out there, let people see it. So we'll see what happens. The judge gets to see it. The judge will ultimately decide what's gonna happen. Uh, I suspect that because Upper Deck didn't produce the actual language because uh, there's kind of this little tap dancing around, what does it actually say? Uh, I suspect that the language at best is ambiguous. Uh, or maybe at worst for Upper Deck, it just gives them what Panini says it gives them, just the right to use Michael Jordan's image and nothing else. So two months, three months, hopefully we'll get a ruling on there. But that's uh, that, it's still my it's my favorite case of 2020. It's 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 over a Michael Jordan this small in a card. It's just it's beautiful. <laughs> yeah. Last time you were on, we talked about it and we actually I, I shared the screen and showed the card. I just sorry I didn't get have time to put that together today. But, I've got uh, it right here. All right, there we go. There we go. Because I love this so much. But okay, if he's right here, it's probably too much glare. But that's him right there. <laughs> so you could barely really can you, small. Tilt the top of those cards towards the cat towards the screen a bit. Now, yeah, you can see him in the bottom right corner, right above the O for optic. It's tough to see, but yeah. it's easier on the card on the left because he's right there. You can see his head and you can see the 23 on his jersey yep. uh, on the winning tickets card. Yep, yep. Yeah. So and, and so Paul, you uh I'm gonna Justin Bode put up a comment here. He goes, Panini testing the water. Is that what is that kind of how you see it? I really don't, uh, because I think it's, uh, well, at least the first one uh, with Scotty Pippen, I think it was probably uh, inadvertent. I mean, it's so small in there. Um, and I don't know why you'd want to test the water here. I mean, 
unless they had a sneak preview of what the license might see, which, you know, that's, again, it's so redacted and such a top secret, I, I, I doubt they would have even seen it before. Um, I think it's, you know, when you release so many cards, uh, you don't look up, I mean, there's quality control issues with every company. I probably put this down to an inadvertent quality control issue more than anything else. So, so you think it wasn't deliberate to put him there? I don't think it was deliberate at all. Okay. <laughs> or if it was deliberate, it was somebody lower on the food chain and it didn't get by their general and their general counsel didn't know about it. I don't. That's probably a better way to say it. I don't think it was a tactical decision by uh, Panini. Maybe somebody sneakily, you know, like with the uh, bong puffer tops baseball card, you know, somebody lower on the line decided to do it and stuck one by. But uh, uh, I, I don't think it was a, a, a evil intent by Panini to, to kick the tires and see what happens. Well, we're speculating either way, but it's fun to right. it's fun to speculate on for sure, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Lowell says this stuff is as equally petty as it is interesting. <laughs> I love it. I like I like that. That that makes sense. And that's uh, a good that's a good point because when this lawsuit came out, I I was really critical. Not because there's it's frivolous. It's not frivolous. They're actually if uh, Upper Deck does have a license uh, to sue, then you know it does make sense. They could bring a lawsuit here, but really over two cards, you're bringing a lawsuit. It, this is more of a phone call or a cease and desist letter where you say, hey guys, stop it. You know, this is close enough. We're drawing the line in the sand. We won't do anything, if, you know, now for this, if you promise to never do it again. But if you do it again, we're going to sue you. You know, that that's really what should happen, especially with these questions over the license. Because if ultimately it turns out Upper Deck didn't have the rights that they purported, that, that they say they have, what a strategic misstep. <laughs> yeah, right, for sure. Um, okay, Rich Klein says that according to, to the guys at Panini at one of Dr. Beckett's hobby dinners, the NBA has to approve every Panini NBA card. So, yeah. and would, would, their, would, would their legal counsel be looking for, for occurrences of violations of the license granted to, up, to Upper Deck for, or the deal Upper Deck has with, uh, with Michael Jordan? I think they'd be looking for multiple issues. Uh, and, you know, that's another one where, you know, the the puck could have just slipped by the goalie there. Because, I mean, even if you're not looking for Michael Jordan in those, and, you know, maybe because these are Bulls players, you should, you know, look in the background for it. But it's a, uni it's a unique issue. It's never really popped up before. So I could see how they missed it. Uh, but I, yeah, and then that's another reason why I don't think it's, you know, evil intent by Panini. I think it was inadvertent. I mean, Upper Deck's, I think Upper Deck's position is it was evil intent because they did release a uh, Scottie Pippen card later where they actually crept, cropped out Jordan. So, you know, at some point they did know it, but you know, we'll, 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 the judge will ultimately sort it out for us and we'll, we'll learn what actually transpired. Yeah. Well, we'll see what happens. I don't, it doesn't seem like much is going to happen just from, from, from the, from what, from what I'm picking up from what you're putting down, I guess. Yeah. Um, Joe says, Paul in, is our eye to the legal world. Thank you for your insights. I, I, I echo that. Thank you for, for joining again tonight, Paul. Uh, Paul Cashman says, low, it, litigation is really America's favorite pastime. We heard that before. Yeah, there should be cards. There should be cards. <laughs> yeah. Back to Dwight Gooden. Uh, Will Sani says, Gooden is the most talented pitcher I've ever seen. Such a waste. Yeah, career cut short for all sorts of reasons, it seems like. Um, okay, and I want to see what uh, EMC says here. A quick comment by him. I'm not sure if it's on topic, but we're going to read it. PSA cornered all of us and almost forced people to skip the grading phase altogether. H-O-I-C. 
back to the HGA. HGA gave us cool slabs, reasonable pricing, and guaranteed time returns as they grow. They will accept more cards. For sure. They just need to scale and time will tell if they're going to be able to uh, to capture a significant portion of, of the market or not. And as for the, uh, the the cool slabs, I think it's a personal preference if you like your slabs all different colors or not. But uh, that'll be up to each collector to decide for themselves. Thank you for clarifying EMC7. Okay, should we move on to the next one then? Sticking with uh, sticking with Panini. Yeah. Now, this one I find interesting, Paul. I don't know much about it. I'm going to leave it to you to explain it to myself and everybody watching and listening. But uh, it has to do with a nine-year-old. Uh, a small claims court, a nine-year-old in small claims court with with respect to redemptions uh, and uh, versus Panini. Why don't you yeah, fill it this, in? Yeah, we're, we were going right from my favorite lawsuit of 2020 to my favorite lawsuit of 2021 here. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, everybody has uh, experienced their their redemption woes, uh, whether, you know, you get a redemption and the replacement, the replacement card they send you is not what you want, or you have a five-year, six-year outstanding redemption. But... You know, before this lawsuit, I always pictured it from me, from, you know, somebody who's in their 40s uh, that, you know, okay, it's not the end of my, you know, this it, is not an end all be all of my existence. I know bad things happen with redemptions. It's disappointing. But when it happens to a nine year old, you know, you're this is the future of the hobby. These are, you know, the, these are sports fans at the beginning of their, you know, loving of sports. So what we had here is a nine-year-old uh, for Hanukkah uh, received a gift uh, of, uh, of a deck of card or a pack of cards, and in there was a redemption for an autograph memorabilia for Claude Giroux. and it just happened to be her favorite player. So this, you know, according to the complaint, just completely made her day. She was so super excited. And uh, come to find out after the redemption is sent in, Panini is not going to send a uh, Giro card. Instead, they're going to uh, send, you know, give her, give her points uh, for something else to do. Uh, she didn't like anything else. She wanted, she wanted that card. And uh, what helped her out a lot is her dad is actually a big time lawyer in Philadelphia. So he uh, prepared the small claims court complaint, uh, filed it. And, uh, you know, an astute, you know, somebody found this, you know, lawsuit, uh, turned me on to it. And it's just, it's, it's just amazing. It's, uh, you know, it's not very often you see, uh, you know, a nine-year-old <laughs> taking on uh, a giant like this. And um, it's, you know, it was set to go to trial. Uh, it got bumped because the trial date was set for when that horrible uh, weather uh, hit Texas. And because of the weather, because of power outages, there couldn't be uh, any Zoom conferences or any travel. So it's now uh, bumped until I believe April 8th is the trial is set. Now, uh, this is a $25 card. Afterwards, I actually, I collect cards involved in lawsuits. That's part of the reason I do this. And so I went out to, uh, to the Ebays and I bought one of these cards. I mean, not the same one, it was numbered you know, less. And it was $25. So you have here a lawsuit that could have been avoided by Panini just buying a $25 card and sending it uh, to them. Now, instead, they've had to retain a lawyer in Philadelphia. They're preparing for trial. Uh, and the trial, you know, it's, it's less than a month away. Ultimately, I think this lawsuit settles. Uh, it's, you know, the fact that it's out there now, that people know about it, that people are watching it. There's just too much uh, pressure on Panini. And being in small claims court, 
you don't know what's going to happen in small claims court. I, I was uh, in small claims court for a company once, and it was because they were uh, uh, a, 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 somebody sued them uh, for the fact that I think it was basically over they were being accused of mind control. I mean, it was it was really it was uh, you know a, tr a troubled person that filed this lawsuit. Uh, we almost lost. <laughs> we decided to settle the case. So uh, you never know what's going to happen in small claims court. So if uh, Panini thinks this is going to be a slam dunk, that's a that's a heck of a roll of the dice there. So we'll we'll, we'll keep watching this one. Hopefully in a month uh, we'll have our trial. But I think it's going to probably go away confidentially. I think she's going to be very happy and get a very nice card. And then we'll and we'll never know what happened. But so. <laughs> Just clarify for me. You said it was a Claude Giroux card, Claude Giroux of the Philadelphia Flyers. Yep. And Panini. So Panini hasn't made hockey cards since 2013, I believe. Uh, is it a card that stems from back then? Uh, I, I believe it does. I, it I didn't. Be. The redemption wasn't in there, and it may have very well been an expired redemption. Uh, you know, it didn't go into the complaint and, uh, you know, obviously in the complaint, it's going to put uh, the case in the light best for the plaintiff. But I always have an issue with uh, manufacturers saying that uh, redemptions can expire. Uh, that's unique to the trading card world. Um, I, I, you know, some viewers out there would know that uh, gift cards and like gift cards can't expire. So there's laws saying that gift cards can't expire. So you know, if you do that, well, what you do in law school, is it's called the slippery slope. Let's say you have a product and there's only one card and you get a redemption and that's your one card. And then that expires. You bought a product that's worth nothing. You know, so is that fair? That That's not. That's not fair. That's not the way products should work. So according to the slippery slope, you know, theory of how things work, I don't believe that redemptions can expire. Uh, so you know, does small does Panini want a small claims court judge to make that law? I, 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 it's it's kind of it's kind of a gamble. Yeah, uh, there's a comment here from an anonymous Facebook user says the optics of fighting a nine year old never looks good on a company. No, no. A big worms made the comment here. Do you think it happened with a nine year old or the parent using her as bait? I, you know, from the from the complaint, uh, I don't think so. Uh, it really seems to me that, you know, this if, you know, reading the complaint and understanding, I mean, I don't know what was actually the theories and everything behind it, but it it reads well. It makes sense. Uh, it passes the initial sniff test. If it does turn out that this is a you know lawyer that you know created this story to make it sound better. Ugh, that's awful. Yeah. Uh, but I, I I tend to think that, you know. Why, you know, why, why would a big time lawyer fight over a $25 card? <laughs> you know, for Probably, yeah, you know. you've got better things to do with your time, but to yeah. teach your child a, a little bit about how the world works, I can understand that a bit more. Right, right. Uh, this Facebook user says leaf redemptions don't expire. So that's a little bit uh, different than, you know, the, the big three uh, card companies, I'll have to say. Charles Murphy says, I'm a Philly guy. Our flyers lost and people around here aren't too happy with Giroux right now. I don't know that his current play will have any impact on the case, but I, I appreciate the comment from Charles Murphy. Uh, a few minutes ago, Daniel Busby says, everyone is headed to eBay to buy Scotty Pippen 2017 optic cards right now to, to buy the case card. I I hear that. I, I, I think that probably happened last time you were on as well. Yep, yep. <laughs> uh, we got Corey Carr late, but here. Welcome back, Corey, Luke, Charlwood. Sorry, I'm 18. What did I What did I miss? Oh, you're late. What did I miss? You're, you're, you're not that late, Luke. You're not that late. Peep says the complaint was filed with a crayon. 
<laughs> it was well typed out. It looks good. It, it's 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 a good professional filing. <laughs> so so uh, oh, and I'll just bring up Lowell's comments. As much like gift cards legally can't expire within five years, redemptions shouldn't either. And we have Brian Gray tuning in from Leaf BG. How are you? Thanks for being here. Says that's true. Leaf redemptions don't expire. So there we have it from right. the the Leaf CEO himself. Thank you for uh, advising everyone on that, Brian Gray. And Chris says, I like Upper Deck System for redemptions. A lot of the time you're getting some decent cards back either way. Yeah, they will send you something different if you can't get what is on the card. And I've seen a lot of people pretty happy with those replacement redemptions as of late. So Paul, uh, this one's uh, a question from Joe Perot. I'm gonna bring it on the screen. It, he says, can Paul shed any light on whether there's a possibility that major sports could share rights for production or if it is more likely that leagues are owned by one specific company. So we're in these single license uh, eras right now where one sport, one manufacturer has a license. Brian Gray in the audience will tell us that, you know, he's been uh, kind of fighting against that himself, trying to get licenses over the years. What uh, what can you say to Joe, to the comment that Joe's making? Do you think that it's something that could come up for uh, a multi, where we can move into multi-license uh, situations? I think, you know, at least for now, that's a decision within the that the leagues have to make. And I don't you know, I, I don't think there's been any traction with the leagues wanting to diversify. I think they're happy enough getting their money from one company uh, and, you know, competition and collectors be damned. Um, that being said, you know, Leaf is involved in a lawsuit uh, with Upper Deck where they're challenging the exclusive license uh, with the Hockey League uh, there. So depending on what happens, you know, in that lawsuit, you know, if it's found uh, to be uh, an illegal monopoly to actually have a uh, license with only one manufacturer, I mean, it's a potential result uh, of that lawsuit. Maybe things will open up or, you know, even if there's a hint, maybe they'll open things up. But, I, you know, right now, as things are, I don't see exclusives going away. And uh, that, that's why they did so well in the uh, uh, 2021 Annoyances Tournament. Uh, <laughs> I think they're here to stay and they're not going to go away. So if you had caught what he just uh, said there, guys, uh, he mentioned his 2020, uh, oh, we lost, <laughs> the Annoyances Tournament, which we're going to talk about towards the end of the show. That's something that you uh, you manage and organize on Twitter, and it's fun, but we'll, we'll talk about that towards the end of the show. So you've now alluded to the, uh, the, the Leaf versus Upper Deck, but we're going to talk about something before we dive more into that one, which is... Uh, class action against Panini with respect to redemption. So not necessarily to do with a nine-year-old young lady, but this is a, a class action suit. So can you explain that? And also maybe why wouldn't they combine if that would even be a thing? Why wouldn't the nine-year-old get involved with the class action? So this is a uh, this is kind of the grand scale, large, oversized version of the nine year old lawsuit here. So originally what happened is this lawsuit was filed in federal court uh, in Texas, and uh, it was uh, based off of redemptions. And it basically it was seeking a class of every person who's ever received a redemption from Panini. Uh, the lawsuit had allegations that the redemptions weren't timely fulfilled, that uh, there were a bait and switch because you have one player on there, you get a player you didn't want. So it was a lawsuit that raised basically every issue uh, that, that you can imagine uh, against redemptions. Um, that lawsuit, it, it, it's, it's a long story to get back to the beginning, really. 
because it was in federal court, there are specific pleading requirements that you need to meet to be in federal court versus a state court. Uh, state courts have different requirements than, you know, than a national court. And uh, so Panini ended up getting that lawsuit dismissed not on the merits. The court did not look at uh, whether redemptions were legal or not. The federal court said, you know, the way that you have this pled, the way that you have the class defined, I don't see enough evidence that there can be a class here. So because of that, the case was dismissed. Uh, so I thought that was the end of it because I didn't see the lawsuit get refiled or an appeal of that issue. Uh, but then it popped up again. Uh, it was refiled in state court this time. Uh, so, uh, the so we're back to the beginning. The lawsuit's just begun, and Panini has recently filed again their motion to dismiss. This time, more so focused on the the merits of the case, whether redemptions are legal or not. So, if this case goes forward, uh, if 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 the case is ultimately dismissed right off the bat, well, then Panini wins, and everybody knows. Okay, well, redemptions are legal, and we're stuck with them for the rest of our lives. Uh, We'll, we'll, we'll know a lot you know, more quickly, hopefully, on this. Uh, but it is funny because this lawsuit was pending for over a year and we're just back to the beginning once more. The legal system uh, in, in the United States sometimes moves slowly. And this case is one of those great examples uh, uh, of that. Well, well, what but, you is know, your... Go ahead. Actually, to get, to get back, I'm sorry, to get back to your issue. So the uh, nine-year-old uh, would actually, if the court uh, ultimately says this case can proceed, and if it's proper to be a class action, just because you file a case wanting it to be a class action, only the judge can decide whether it's going to be a class action or not. So if the judge would let the case proceed, and if the judge would say this class would actually include everybody, uh, including nine-year-olds uh, in this, that case could swallow the nine-year-old case. But they're on two different you know, trajectories right here. We're probably going to be done with the nine-year-old lawsuit in April, and you know we'll be lucky to get a ruling in the larger case uh, till maybe June or July. So what is your opinion on redemptions in terms of both... Uh, when a card company exchanges out what the, what the redemption card says is you are going to receive as the purchaser of the product that it was within um, and and also the expiration of them that we see on Panini, Upper Deck and Tops cards. Yeah, so I understand uh, redemptions are necessary evils. Uh, athletes are busy, you know, not just athletes, but anybody who has an autographed card, they're, they're busy people. And putting together uh, any product, uh, there's so many moving parts that, uh, you know, it's, I, I can't imagine the stress sometimes these product managers have to be under uh, for it because, you know, you're, you're, there's basically 121 different things that all have to work out exactly to get the product to go, to go the way it is. So I understand the need for redemptions. Uh, I don't necessarily have a problem with redemptions if they're unable to get fulfilled and there is a substitute that's provided for it, so long as the substitute is fair. Uh, what I do have issues with and what I think is one of the challenges in the Panini lawsuit was that Panini would say that the redemptions would be you know, fulfilled uh, within six months or nine months. I'm not sure what the, I, I don't remember exactly what the complaint alleged. And you know, having been a victim of the Panini redemption process, I know that I had some redemptions that were not timely fulfilled. And instead of actually getting you know, uh, a, a response uh, or you know, a response that would actually make me happy, I was just you know, kicked down the line. Um, so, 
you know, when it comes to the timing, I would think in an issue like that, that's that that's a breach of contract. Um, with redemptions expiring, I don't think they can expire. So I think that's a consumer fraud uh, type claim. Uh, but that being said, I still think redemptions, I don't think redemptions, the concept of them, if executed properly, are wrong. Uh, I just, you know, wish there was more follow through uh, from some companies uh, on those redemptions. Yeah. As, as Justin says, you know, they make sense to him. Uh, and like you said, you understand that they're necessary. And, and me too. I, I understand. And, you know, and speaking with people from card companies, you know, there's only there's only so much they can do to retrieve back the cards with the autographs from the athletes uh, in time for their packouts. So what are they supposed to do? It's a really, really tough situation for them. I think they hate them more than anybody, even <laughs> even the nine year old and the class action, the, the people who brought the class action suit to light. Uh, but, uh, but, but in terms of expiring that to me, you know, I've never been a fan of that. And, and, um, you know, I've had people on the show talk about why they expire and, you know, they mentioned that it comes, it comes down to things like space, where do we keep them, uh, logistics, organization, um, that sort of thing, which I, I understand that too, but I don't know that that's the, the proper out for them. I, I think, I think that it, that, you know, you buy, you buy a product uh, especially if you're buying a product that is past expiry on the redemption that's sitting on the shelves at some card shops, that product is now lost value. So if you yep. buy it, you're taking a big gamble that if one of the, if you get a card with a redemption, you're SOL, but the, the owner of the card shop is now, it's like a sunk cost sitting on the shelf there. What's, what's he supposed to do and how good is he going to, he or she going to feel to sell it to a customer who's going to get skunked because they get an expired redemption. So but I am aware that the com the card companies, they do have some programs in place where I, I, I don't know if all of them do. I know some and by some I mean upper deck where they will uh, they will do some things for your expired redemptions, whether it's put you in a draw to win something or exchange them out or and another company. Um, I don't remember his upper deck or Panini. Uh, will actually honor them a year past the redemption date, which is a nice, a nice, it's a concession in the right direction. Whether it's enough or not is is up for everybody to decide for themselves. And, th and there are ways that if uh, you know a, a manufacturer wanted a legal, what I would think is a completely you know bulletproof methodology for redemptions, is wrap the product. You know when you have the cellophane, wrap the wrap the product and say on here, you know that you know here if you receive a redemption, here's what could possibly happen. You know by buying this product, I am agreeing to be bound by this contract. You know, whether that's legal or not, but it's it's a lot more, you know, my big issues more are, you know, just you know, consume, it should be disclosed, what should be disclosed to consumers. Consumers should know the truth right from the beginning, you know. And so if your box says on the back, you know, and I don't even care if it's in, you know, really small print, but just say on the box, what are the possible, what's possibly going to happen here? If you get a redemption, the redemption can expire, you can be out of luck. Say it all up front so that nobody's caught surprised by it. Yeah, I agree with that. I think that would go a long way to help their case for sure. I want to say hello to Roy G. Good evening to you. Uh, and then Jeremy Pringle makes a comment. Is there any onus legally on the athlete to fulfill their part of the contract to provide signatures? Now, that's a great question. I'm going to let Paul respond to that to the extent that you can. But in talking to industry insiders in the past, and the question has come up, well, why don't you take action against the athlete if they don't send them back to you in time, being you being the card companies. And they will say to you, 
we're not going to take make a claim against an athlete. We'll get blacklisted. No one's going to ever, they'll, you know, they won't. No one will ever sign for us again. That'll that would ruin the whole system. So they're really caught in a tough spot. But right. I like yeah. the way Jeremy Pringle words this in terms of is there any onus legally on the athlete to fulfill the contract to sign them? What can you say about that, Paul? Yeah, there. You know, you're right. There is the the, the trading card companies have a contract with each athlete, and they have a they pay the athletes for each one of those autographs. So yes, you know, theoretically, not theoretically, there actually is an onus on the card or on the athlete to sign the cards and send the cards in. They are technically in breach of contract if they don't do that. But like you said, who's going to, you know, which trading card manufacturer is going to commit suicide by suing them for breach of contract? Yeah. I mean, you're going to be, okay, Tom Brady, uh, you didn't do your, you know, you didn't sign you know, on time. We're going to sue you for that. Okay, fine. Sue me. I'm never going to do business with you again. There's three other companies out here. I'll just go sign with one of them, you know? I mean, and, and I'm going to text all my buddies in the NFL and tell them not to deal with you either. Exactly. Yeah. And then now you're you're exclusive with the leagues in jeopardy. So it's kind of a you know, it's a contract. It's a breach of contract action that is hanging out there. But it's a it's a paper tiger. Uh, you can't you can't do anything with that. You know, sometimes the law is trumped by business. And here the business is going to say, you know, we're not going to do it. Yeah. Yeah. OK, good stuff. Let's move on to the next topic that we have. Now, this one I have on my notes, I have it written down as Donald Spence versus Common Sense Coins with respect yeah. to a PSA 10 Michael Jordan card. And the Donald Spence, that's got nothing to do with J, JSA. That's James Spence or Jimmy Spence. So that this is a completely different who who's Donald Spence I guess is what I'm trying to ask <laughs> you know actually I don't know I thought there was some connection uh there just because of the uh, amount of money spent in here so I wish I could shed more light on uh, on that but uh what we have here is uh Donald Spence uh had a um, uh bought a uh Michael Jordan uh PSA 10 uh 1986 Fleer card uh for $20,000 um, and uh, within you know a couple of years, everybody's familiar with the the current market. Uh, Jordan cards are just worth more and more all the time. Uh, by the time uh, uh, he was seeing these cards sold for ninety five thousand dollars, decided, hey, uh, let's 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 sell this one right here. You know, it's if you make four x return, you know, over a, you know, a matter of a couple of years, that that's that's good enough. So he retained uh, Memory Lane to help him uh, sell the card. And Memory Lane had the idea that, you know, let's let's get this card re-slab. Let's get it in a better slab, uh, bring it to PSA, uh, and, uh, you know, that'll up the value, and then we'll, we'll sell it. Uh, PSA, however, when they got the card, uh, said, you know, there, there's issues here. This isn't uh, a card that we would have, this, this isn't a card we slab. This is a, uh, you know, a forgery. It's not a real card. Uh, so sorry, we can't do anything about it. So at that point, you know, Spence tries to work it out with uh, the defendant in the case with common sense uh, to try and get their money back. But common sense's position was, hey, we were duped to, you know, we, we we saw this out there. We thought this was a PSA 10, uh, you know, it, our bad. Uh, but, you know, we're, we're not the bad guys here. The bad guy is somebody else. That's who you should sue right now. Uh, Donald Spence did not like that answer. Uh, so he filed loss, a lawsuit against them. Um, and, uh, that, that's really where, where we are. It's a newer lawsuit. Um, but you know, with the concerns that are out there about, uh, fake, uh, uh, you know, graded cards that are out there, you know, this is, you know, one of the first instances we've seen litigation actually on it. 
Well, as we've seen from a few uh, people in the in the room here, Brian Gray, Rich Klein, uh, Mike Davis at Eastridge Sports, uh, you know, letting us know that Donald Spence is a high-profile collector with several top uh, re- PSA registry sets. So, um, yeah. you know, if you have that many great cards, you're probably, you know, and you're that passionate of a collector, you're going to be PO'd. <laughs> If you're not, I guess, yeah. the, I guess even if you're not, you're going to be super PO'd on, on that one. So, I mean, so common sense, who's common sense coins and uh, just an eBay seller, an auction house, who are they? Yeah, it's an eBay seller. Uh, from what I can determine, it was an eBay seller. Uh, so it's, you know, it's one of those instances too, where uh, I don't know about you, I'm not buying $20,000 cards. Uh, if I was going to buy a $20,000 card, I'd probably want to get an expert to look at that first. Uh, so I think part of what common sense is saying here is, you know, you you, you should have done your due diligence and you and you didn't. Uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's going to be interesting to see what happens here because it's sometimes it is hard to go after the forgers here because they're not deep pockets. Uh, you don't know who they are. You know, so there's a lot of money being ex- exchanged here. So, you know, who's the guilty party? So it'll be interesting to see if this case continues. This is another case where I can't imagine both sides are going to want to spend a lot of money on attorneys. You know, attorneys are, you know, $400, $500 an hour. Uh, pretty quickly, you're, you've eaten up the difference between what this card's worth and what these companies actually have. Um, although PSA 10 Jordans right now are <laughs> worth quite a bit. Quite a bit more than ninety thousand dollars right now. That, that's for sure. Yeah. yeah. So I, I just want to. So so to recap, and uh, for my own benefit at this point, because you know when you're speaking, sometimes I'm looking at comments, so I might have missed if you said it, and I apologize if I did. But Donald Spence bought the card from Common Sense, fake, yes. fake slab, fake card. I believe yep. that's what you're saying. Yep. Common Sense said they were duped by somebody else. Will Will this case get to the point where? It's invest. There's an investigation as to where they got the card from and who they bought it from. It's a big card. They, I'm, I'm going to make an assumption. Could be wrong that they know, remember, have a record of who they bought the card from. Is this something that would go to law enforcement in terms or FBI or whatever, whoever, whatever group it would be, whatever organization to look into and see who's the original forger of the card and the slab? That's I a think big it, deal because if, yeah, if you're forging slabs, you're probably forging more than one of them. Yeah, I, I think this is probably something that was turned over to the authorities and the authorities are actually looking into it. Uh, I also think, uh, you know, as part of the case, uh, discovery will be served. People will be looking uh, in, into the, the history of this card. I'm sure, uh, you know, Spence is going to want to know that and is going to ask about that. Uh, as a plaintiff's attorney, right now, I'm, I'm a plaintiff's attorney. And, it, you know, a common saying is sue everybody and let the judge sort it out. So the more people you sue, the more guilty parties there are, especially here, where you'll have parties pointing at each other saying, you're the bad guy. No, you're the bad guy. That, you know, if you go to a jury and both sides are pointing at each other and the plaintiff's pointing at both of them, juries tend to side with plaintiffs in instances like that. So yes, ultimately it will come out who did uh, common sense buy this card from. And uh, I'm sure uh, law enforcement uh, is, is probably looking into this also. You know, it's, I think it's important that, that our hobby, you know, I know it's already on the radar of FBI and law enforcement, but as long as these things are happening and there's certainly many more instances of it out there that we're not even aware of, I'm sure, you know, there's, 
there's going to be instances of fraud. There's people watching right now, myself perhaps, where we have fraudulent cards in our collection that we just do not know about. So yeah. it's nice to know that somebody is kind of fighting it and that they will go uh, deeper to to get some some justice on this. Hopefully, justice will be served. Tough to say whether I'm I, I think it will or, or I'm skeptical it will be. But uh, what about you? Do you think we're gonna we're gonna see something come out of this? Like just gut feel. I, I don't think so. I think the parties will ultimately settle uh, confident, confidentially again. Most lawsuits settle and most lawsuits settle confidentially. And we are none the wiser uh, about that. Uh, so here, uh, I, I really do side more with the plaintiff and the defendant. Sure, you were duped, but then you sold it. I mean, it's, it's you sold it for $20,000. While Spence held it, that card only went up and up and up in value. Uh, so he, he's got lost, uh, economic, lost economic costs from buying this card from you. He could have bought it from somebody else. It, it had been original and he wouldn't be in this position. So he's, you know, not just lost $20,000. He's lost all that, you know, additional revenue he could have, could have received. Yeah. If he could get half a million for it right now, which would probably be a slam dunk for him. So that's a, that's a half a million dollars. None of us want to lose that kind of money for sure. No. My man, Sean McAtecha says, I think we will see more of this as the market has gone crazy for highly graded cards. And that's a great point. I think we're, we're all sort of uh, cognizant of that and, and a little bit maybe paranoid about it even, or we should be somewhat. And I think to that end, we need to rely on the third party authenticators to come up with or whether it's uh you know fraud proof their slabs i don't know if it's if that's even a possible concept but it'll it'll be it'll be an arms race i mean at some point you know somebody will come out with a slab that can't be copied until it's copied and then somebody else will come up with another slab and then what do you do with all the old inventory uh it's you know it's 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 good that i hope something like that does happen but it's not going to be it's not going to stop it uh, somebody will always get a find a way to work around it yeah i'm just thinking what could we do and then the thought you know when it comes to fake patches in cards people have said well put some sort of invisible ink on the patch itself or some some glue under the patch that if you remove it it's going to destroy the card i thought well maybe some sort of invisible ink on the card itself but that would that would be altering the card itself and no yeah. one no one's going to send their card to a to a third party authentication company or a grading company and have them add anything to their card that is yeah. no longer a natural card so that idea is no good, but um, yeah, you know. yeah. Here's take your PSA ten, Michael Jordan, and we're we're, we're going to mark it on the back. Yeah, who's going to do that? <laughs> <laughs> some way, but but like that that would be a solution is adding some invisible mark onto your card. But I don't want an invisible mark on my card. I obviously don't want a visible mark, but I certainly don't want an invisible one either. But anyway, I'm glad it's not my job to figure that out. But uh, you know, I, I hope that we get somewhere with that for sure. Uh, Paul Dinadai says, love the conversations with Paul. Thank you for joining us. Uh, sorry, Peter. Thank you very, very much for joining us. And Brian Gray says that these fake slabs came out of Mexico, which is somewhat surprising to me when you think of this thing, you, you always, my mind always goes to, oh, it's, you know, China's where not, where knockoffs in the fashion industry mostly come out of. You kind of think that might be consistent with sports cards. I don't know why, just, but what, what are your, anything to say on that? Do you have any insights into where these things could be coming from? I, I don't actually know where they come from. And, you know, while, you know, maybe some of these ones are coming out of Mexico now, they will be coming out of every corner of the world at some point. Once somebody figures out how to do it, everybody else sees that there's money in it. And especially when it's high dollar values like this, there's just a, a lot of, I mean, uh, unfortunately, a lot of demand for fake 
stuff out there. I mean, especially in this industry. I mean, it's was it Operation uh, Bullpen uh, said that there's potentially up to 80% of all sports memorabilia may be counterfeit or not counterfeit, maybe fake. So um, it's just a lot of bad actors that are out there, a lot of smart bad actors that are out there. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, there wasn't more fake stuff coming out of China or Europe or, you know, anywhere else soon or <laughs> Denver. <you know? laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, Michael Zigino says, uh, great show tonight. I'm putting my Panini Redemption rant together. I'm sure you're not alone. I'm sure lots of people have redemption. Yep. Rant. I think just about every collector in the hobby has a redemption rant yep. that they're, that they just, you know, that they go over in their head, uh, and they just wait to talk to somebody from a card company to let them have it. Uh, Jake at nineties B-ball cards. Do we have any new info on the fake BGS slabs that have popped up? So, uh, I personally do not Jake, uh, to what extent are you aware of this Paul? And do you have anything to, to add to it? That's just that's another uh, topic that I'm watching and I'm waiting for lawsuits uh, on that one. Uh, most of my, you know, where I add value to the hobby is I have access to a lot, a lot of databases uh, for legal filings. And I just, you know, pour over the legal filings and see what's there that, you know, most people either don't know that's out there or just can't access it. So uh, until there's a lawsuit on these, I, I probably know just as much as everybody else on these. All right. Well, thanks for for chiming in. Uh, I want to welcome Joe Rab. Says uh, great content, guys. Keep up the great work. Thank you, Joe. And I just want to mention anyone who's new, if, you, if it's your first time watching the show, appreciate having you. Uh, and I want to thank Paul for being on Twitter and letting people know he was going to be here. So if you are new to Sports Cards Live, I welcome you. And I ask you to give us a subscribe on the YouTube channel. Hit the thumbs up on the video. It helps the algorithm and uh, whatever. How, I don't know what, what the help does, but it helps apparently. So. Thanks to everyone for, uh, who has subscribed, who's about to go subscribe, and for hitting the thumbs up button. Uh, Wise Collectible says, are the older PSA slabs more possible to open it and replace the card in comparison to the new slabs? That's a great question. I don't know if it's a legal question, so to speak, but um, I really don't have any comment on that. Paul, any comment? And if you know, people have had a longer, you know, they've had the older slabs for a longer time, so they know how to work with those uh, more so than the newer slabs. And I'd imagine as the newer slabs come out, there's more uh, security features that are built in. So, and it's, it's, again, that's going to be one of those problems. Let's say PSA comes up with a tamper-proof uh, slab. Well, what do you do with all the old slabs that are out there? There's millions of slabs out there, and they're not going to replace them all for free. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Brian Gray mentions that a guy sent him a fake. I think he's saying a fake slab five years ago. He sent it back. That's the right thing to do. Re return it if you if you catch it. You know, otherwise you you might have one in your collection right now. Yeah. Uh, Delond, welcome to the show. Quick question: PSA Silver membership allows you to get bulk discounts on subs. Thanks. I'm uh, not sure. Delond, check their website psacard.com. Chris Dwarnick says put a second mystery serial number on the slab that the owner and grading company has. I mean. That's a, definitely the start of a brainstorm on a solution, I would say. So great, great suggestion. Chris, <laughs> Justin Bo just wants everybody to know that Mexico <laughs> is fun. Mexico is a fun place for sure, for sure. Uh, comment from Peeps. I don't know what this is related to, Paul. Maybe you do. What's going on with the welding helmet skulls? <laughs> so, uh, oh, up there, are, uh, up there. Okay. Like that is a uh, trademark, uh, patent, and uh, copyright lawsuit that we uh, did uh, – Gosh, 10 or 12 years ago, we represented uh, owner the the, uh, the middle helmet uh, was our client's uh, welding helmet skull. Uh, the two on either ends were uh, the uh, companies that made copies of them. And, uh, you know, we brought a lawsuit and did some good there. And 
that's one of the fun things about doing intellectual property law is uh, sometimes your client, I mean, your clients are always their artists, their inventors, they do cool things. And every once in a while you get some cool things you can decorate your office with. So that's, that's why those are there. I'm not a wielder though. <laughs> while we're on that topic, uh, you mentioned it very briefly uh, about 10 or 15 minutes ago, but why don't you uh, kind of let us know the cards over what would be your right shoulder um, and I know from the last time, but just tell tell people a little bit about your collection on display. Sure. So uh, I collect cards that are involved in lawsuits. So the majority of the cards that I have uh, up here are cards. You know, there's been this is a very litigious industry, as you can tell. I mean, we're only talking about lawsuits and legal issues from 2020 and 2021. Uh, I've been writing about legal issues in the hobby since 2010. Uh, and there's at least at least four lawsuits a year. So anytime there's a lawsuit with cards, I go out and get those cards uh, or try to get those cards. And uh, so that's the vast majority of the collection there. I also do have some Project 2020 cards that are up there. Uh, uh, you know, that's I, I really enjoy collecting those. And then, you know, there's actually one P70 card up there, too. But the vast majority of my collection are cards involved in lawsuits. And you even have, I believe you have a Project 2020 card up there that you have a legal issue with. There, there are actually, um, yeah, where is it? There is, this is, this is a fun card. It was, uh, there was actually a lawsuit that was filed over this. Uh, and we'll, we'll, we'll talk, talk about it later. Uh, but there was an ADA claim brought against Tops. <laughs> so uh, through their website and the uh, person that brought it, brought the lawsuit uh, based on trying to buy this card. So, yes. <laughs> not, actually, not the one I was expecting. I thought I remembered one from when we when we had you on last time that maybe had to do with the the holder it was in or something like that. Is that right? Uh, that was, so uh, the issues there were I had problems with, and a lot of people had with uh, the uh, holders. There is uh, Originally, as Project 2020 was listed uh, on Topps' website, it was that it would have uh, ultra, uh, ultra point one touch uh, car holders, but then supply and demand fell apart and uh, they've had multiple different holders. So uh, back then uh, I was raising the legal issues that, you know, I was not happy <laughs> with the fact that their website said one thing uh, and they were providing something else. So, <laughs> okay. so now, but there, now there's another one we can we can talk about that later. Um, I want to shout out here. We got Toa Hang in the house. He's saying, "Glad you're live. Been a slow weekend on the sports card YouTube front. Must be the Dallas Card Show. I think it's worth mentioning the Dallas Card Show is on this weekend. I've been trying to catch as much sort of live footage as I can on Instagram. Various people have been showing some, and boy, it's like four rooms in a in a in a big hotel." Seems like they are packed at the at the Dallas Card Show, and I'm looking forward to some great content coming out uh, from there in the week ahead. And like most of us, I'm I would sure love to be there this weekend. So, but if I was, or you know, that'd be one less bit of a uh, YouTube content hobby content on the on the airwaves tonight. So at least we're here filling that void. So thank you, uh, Toa. Um, question from Shamik again here. He says, "What's the biggest lawsuit the card hobby has ever seen?" Oh, there, there's so many lawsuits. I wouldn't say any of them are, you know, the biggest, as in biggest dollar value. Uh, most of them, I, I would say, are you know mixed dollar values. The most fun uh, lawsuit, which I think is the biggest lawsuit, was uh, about eight nine years ago. It was Upper Deck versus Upper Deck. 
uh, it was where the European version of Upper Deck was suing the U.S. version of Upper Deck. Uh, and that, that was a really fun, it was a, a head scratcher to figure out, and it was a fun one to watch. Uh, I mean, there's, I've, uh, if you um, uh, just Google search my name and Law of Cards, uh, you'll pull, you'll be able to pull up lots of different uh, uh, articles I've written on very many lawsuits. Uh, yeah, I, I don't put them in order of biggest that are out there. I put them as most fun. That's probably yeah. the best way to, to describe it. Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, Lee Haskins says, cool. What a cool collection, which I, I got to agree with that. Says, I've been collecting cards with famous people in the background in audience. So cool to find one with Jordan in the background. And that's the subject of a lawsuit. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I want to quickly shout out my man, Davey. I've lost the comment, but uh, good evening to you, Davey. You're with us. Good evening to you as well, my friend. Uh, um, okay, let's uh, let's keep on going. I want to bring up this one here from Wise Collectibles. It says, apologies if this has already been discussed, but what would the legal ramifications be if it is someday discovered that someone else signed the Luka Doncic rookie cards? Yeah, that's that's a very interesting issue, and you you hear about stuff like that happening uh, out there. Uh, the the there is when you get a card, uh, depending on what the card says on the back, it says that these cards are the autograph on this card is certified as being original. It's certified as being an actual uh, you know, autograph of the person on the front of the card. Uh, so there's, you know, built in a potential breach of contract or consumer fraud type action in those cards. Also, uh, California has my favorite statute in the world. It's a uh, memorabilia autograph uh, statute. That says if you can show that there is a false uh, autograph on a card, you're entitled to a multiplier of damages. I think it's a five times multiplier of damages. Plus, you get your attorney's fees and you get costs. So there are a lot of negative ramifications if a manufacturer is shown to have a fake autograph uh, on a card. Uh, it hasn't been tested. I've uh, always wanted to personally test that uh, against the company opportunity hasn't i mean i've heard allegations like that before uh you don't want to bring that lawsuit unless you have definitive proof um because it could really backfire on you uh, all the athlete has to because i'm not an autograph expert most people aren't autograph experts i've worked with autograph experts in other cases and they you know they would tell you that you know sometimes a very different looking autograph is still from the same person Time, you know, over time, things change. People shorten their signatures. They change their signatures. Uh, so it's a really difficult. It's a really difficult lawsuit uh, to bring. Uh, I hope to bring one someday uh, on this topic, though. <laughs> and as Birds on the Bat says, you know, a lot of people don't think he signed it. I, I've seen a lot of um, speculation that it, that it's his mother's signature. I think people have made the comment that it almost looks more like more of a feminine signature. And I don't know what a feminine signature looks like necessarily, but you know, maybe more loopy, uh, bigger letters. I'm not sure, but uh, I wouldn't. I wouldn't have made that call myself. I've seen the autograph, and there's nothing fishy about it to me. I mean, I've seen some horrible, very uh, short autographs in the hobby before, and it just looks like another one of those to me that doesn't re necessarily represent the letters in his name, except for the two L's, perhaps. But yeah. I guess may who knows if we're gonna ever know the truth behind that one. But I'm. And that was an issue. That was an issue I actually looked at because I was intrigued uh, by it at the time. And, you know, just I mean, again, I'm looking at it with a layman's eye more than anything else. It didn't jump out at me. Uh, you know, normally when I file uh, a complaint to start a case, I want something. If a jury looks at it or a judge looks at it, it just they're just 
angry right off the bat. And there, you know, you show both signatures and one of them's more arched to the right than the other one. And like, eh, that's, that's, that's not going to infuriate a judge or a jury. So, uh, didn't, it, that's, didn't look good enough for me to bring a lawsuit on. Yeah. I think I'm with you on that one. Yeah. Daniel Busby says, can we see some of Paul's collection or maybe before he logs off? Yeah, well, we can get to some of that uh, towards the end of the show. And also, I have a number of tweets out there where I do actually have threads going through quite a few of the cards in my collection. So, you know, just go on Twitter, search for, you know, me and my collection. And I'll, 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 I'll you know, I'll share the links afterwards uh, just so you can see. But uh, I've, I've, I've put that to, I put a lot of time putting together my collection. So I, I do like to share. Uh, quite often <laughs> so. that's cool that, it's always fun to, to enjoy your collection and if you haven't noticed yet everybody out there uh paul's twitter handle is uh on the ticker right now so feel free to give him a follow on twitter and if he puts those links out there you'll be directed to uh his cards and the i guess the legal issues behind them which is pretty yep. pretty interesting want to say good evening to sports cards review thank you for joining us todd mcdonald appreciate the comment very much facebook user you know <laughs> I miss card shows so much for the last year. I would love to be there too. Well, right. you know, actually right now with everybody at the card show, now is the time to be on eBay. It is the best <laughs> time to buy cards off eBay. That's right. Everyone, yeah, a lot of big players are at the show right now. So it might be a good time to be to do some uh, some bargain shopping on eBay, as Paul just mentioned. Uh, Toa says, I wouldn't mind his mom's signature. She is gorgeous. <laughs> yeah, hey, why not? She could be a lovely lady. We got homage Dave Archer in the house. Good evening, Dave. Great to have you. Uh, Facebook user says, I would die laughing if they were fakes. No. Yeah, I, I wouldn't die laughing because a lot of people are going to be feeling ripped off. There's a lot of yeah. money tied up in Luca cards right now, uh, several into autographed cards. So yeah. I, I, I think it'd be I, I, a I little bit humorous quickly. And then you realize how many of your hobby brethren are like, kicking themselves I, or buying them in the first place. Yeah, I threw up in my mouth. I mean, it, it's not like these people are like buying something that's, you know, I mean, they're buying what looks to be a really good player who's going to, you know, age well in the future. So it's not like this is a gamble. I mean, everything's a gamble, but it's not like it's a stupid investment. I mean, that's so I wouldn't laugh for it. I feel sick for the people. It is true. <laughs> Well, here, look at this. 4.6 million times five, right? The card, the Luca with an autograph just sold for $4.6 million. If there is a rule out there that says that you're entitled to a multiplier of five on the value, that might've been the best investment everyone, anyone ever made. <laughs> if they really feel strongly that that's a fake autograph, they might've just turned 4 million into 20. Yeah. That's, yeah. Uh, you know, that's like, that's Michael Jordan PSA 10 returns over the last couple of years. Not too bad, not yeah. too bad. Okay, I want to go back. Uh, there was a comment from Toa that is going to pr prove to be right here. He says, I would love to hear more about the PSA trimming lawsuit. Did that ever get resolved? That's going to bring us right to the next topic on our agenda, Paul, which is an update on the Savoy versus PSA trimmed cards case. Would you mind setting the table for the case, giving us an update from last time and where we're at now? Yeah. So this is a lawsuit, uh, you know, a while back, I, I think it's two years ago now, ESPN broke a story about, uh, and, and I mean, not just ESPN, but there's a lot of people uh, online and in forums that were discussing the fact that there were, uh, they thought there was evidence of trimmed cards that had been uh, graded uh, by PSA. And uh, PSA's position is it will not grade uh, trimmed cards. 
any any modified cards. They, they, they will not be graded. So the fact that you know people were pointing out that there's a, questions with a 10, questions with a 9.5, uh, they look like they're trimmed because they're bouncing in the uh, bouncing in the the, the slab. That uh, you know there there were issues there. So Savoy uh, was the first lawsuit uh, based on this. Uh, he brought the lawsuit alleging that he had purchased a, uh, a purchased cards that uh, were trimmed and uh, yet were still graded. Uh, his lawsuit also said that he, having purchased other PSA cards, that because this story came out, he thought the entire gra all graded cards had lost value uh, in the economy because of that. Uh, this lawsuit, he brought it against PSA, Collectors Universe and PSA. He brought it against uh, PWCC and he brought it against uh, Rick Probstein as well. Uh, the lawsuit's been going on for a couple of years now. It, it's it's kind of got a funny little history because it, it was originally filed in state court. Uh, the defendants moved the case to federal court and you can do that uh, if there are issues, if it are issues of federal law or if there's issues of multiple states being involved, you can move a case from state court to federal court. So that's what happened here. Now, so once the case moved to federal court, the defendants brought a motion to dismiss to get rid of the case, uh, to say that there's no value uh, in this case. And it really focused on the fact that uh, the plaintiff, Savoy, did not identify the graded and trimmed card that he uh, bought. Uh, so, Eventually, it comes out. It was a Ricky Henderson rookie uh, card that he bought. That he uh, alleges that he he alleges that he believes it was trimmed. So the defendants jumped all over this. They said, "Wait, he doesn't even know if this card's trimmed. He's just saying I believe it's trimmed." Um, so uh, we go through the motion to dismiss process, and ultimately, as the parties are fighting back and forth and back and forth, Savoy's um, claim federal claim for RICO, uh, the Racketeering and Corrupt uh, Practices Act, um, was dismissed. And that was the only federal claim that was in this case. So because of that, Savoy said, hey, federal court, you don't have jurisdiction anymore. This case should be sent back to state court. Uh, being that this is a case with high stakes and defense attorneys on uh, on the other side, they proceeded to file many, many briefs afterwards arguing why the case should remain in federal court. The judge, however, said, nope, I don't have any jurisdiction over this case anymore. It goes back to state court. So after a year of the case pending, we're back at square one, back in state court. The defendants have again filed their motions to dismiss and we're almost exactly in the same position. Now, there was a settlement uh, with uh, Probstein uh, in the case, confidential, we don't know what it is. And there's some fight that's under seal about how does that settlement affect the case? So it'll be interesting to see what's happening. Uh, I would love to know what's happening. It's moving so slowly <laughs> that you know we never know when we're going to get a ruling. But ultimately, uh, soon there will be a ruling from the state court on whether or not this case uh, can even proceed. It's, it's been having trouble starting. Uh, they've lost some claims. Uh, so we'll see if it actually uh, continues or not. So <clears throat> when you say that the uh, the plaintiff said that uh, or they're accusing him of not knowing if it was trimmed, but he thinks it was trimmed and that's just not good enough. I mean, I, along with many people watching right now, listening, have probably seen 
um, the blowout forums, a lot of the uh, the very detailed work that individuals have done to identify cards um, where they're proving for, they're proving that you know a before and after is the same card based on really unique, almost the fingerprint of the cards, the the fibers of of the paper themselves are identifying little spots here and there that it makes it somewhat indisputable that it's the same card. With with evidence like that available in the public domain, and the Savoy plaintiff kind of seems like he he she his legal counsel missed a very what would seem to be a very simple requirement of a of an action. Um, it's like if the hobby wanted somebody to go after this particular issue, they got the wrong guy doing it. Yeah, I agree. And that was one of the issues that I've, I've had with the lawsuit uh, for a long time. Uh, I've uh, throughout the entire motion to dismiss process, uh, I was pretty adamant that the case was going to get dismissed for that very reason. Uh, again, when I file a complaint in a case, I wanted to tell a story. So if I was going to have a card that was you know, trimmed in there, I would have definitive proof. I would have a expert having looked at it. I would have, you know, everything explained on why this card was definitively trimmed in there. And the fact that it's not there, you know, it's, it's, it, you, you really question uh, the, you know, is this really the lawsuit to actually challenge these issues, which is a shame. Uh, when the lawsuit like this begins, you can't bring in all that other outside evidence. The judge is going to look at this plaintiff. He's going to look at his cards that he bought and try and figure out, is he an adequate representative for everybody else? And, you know, unless they're, I think unless Savoy somehow steps up, gets a uh, expert to look at this or, you know, finds a better card in his collection. I mean, you know, some of the cards that were that are out there. I mean, I, I, just, I remember seeing some where it's in the slab. And if you shake the slab, I mean, the card bounces back and forth and up and down. I mean, so it's it's not hard to show, uh, you know, if, if a card was trimmed to actually show that. But they don't. They, he just doesn't in this lawsuit. Yeah. OK, fair enough. Uh, Terry Fortin says that BODA does great work. That's a reference to Blowout Detective Agency. I believe that's what that is an acronym for being the uh, just the collectors on the blowout message boards that do the uh, that, that. And I mean, these guys have have identified seemingly dozens, if not hundreds of, of cards that have. I mean, I'm convinced 100 percent that you know, unless they're unless these guys are photoshopping this stuff themselves, just it's pretty convincing that there is an issue here. Yeah. Uh, Brian Gray says the best proof is serial numbered cards because yeah, yeah th that makes good sense to me. And uh, it's almost an, it's almost a, an argument for everything being serial numbered, but I don't think that's reasonable nor necessary to, to really, I mean, not all cards are worthy of forgery. So, yeah. But um, interesting, interesting stuff there. I want to, we're going to just sort of step back a little bit here. Um, we had a couple comments come in. So uh, on, on the last issue that we spoke about. So this uh, Facebook user says, how about the Anaheim Ducks rookie from NHL who used the auto pen? Collectors figured out it was an auto pen really quickly. Well, it wasn't an auto pen. It was a stamp he was using apparently. <laughs> and he it was on his Upper Deck Ultimate Collection rookie card. His name was Devontae Smith Pelly, but the hobby quickly nicknamed him Devontae Stamp Pelly, which <laughs> I still get a good laugh at. And uh, and I don't think anything really well, I think what came of it, and this is pretty funny, not funny, just interesting. 
At the time that happened, I got a phone call from the NHLPA because of my involvement in the Hobby Insider message boards. And it's a hockey-centric uh, message board community. And um, I, I own the website. And I got a phone call. I was very honored to receive this call from the NHL, from their legal counsel to tell me, I, I don't know why they picked me, but they did. It was like one of the weirdest phone calls I've gotten in my whole life uh, to tell me that, hey, we know what's going on. And by the way, we're going to be uh, reissuing these cards to, to the people that own them, which I thought was, I'm like, hey, great. Thanks for, thanks for letting me know. Well, right. Why are you letting me know? But thanks for letting me know. It's kind of funny, but... Um, so that that's what this uh, Facebook user is mentioning. Uh, but it wasn't it wasn't an auto pat stamp, an auto pen. It was a stamp. What's your opinion on using a stamp to sign your cards? Yeah, it's it's the same thing with a stamp or an auto pen. Uh, and I saw the the prior uh, comment was talking about the DAC uh, Prescott uh, auto pens, and I've got one of those there uh, up there too because that is a legal issue. Uh, you know, these cards are certified as being an authentic signature. So you're looking at a breach of contract or a consumer fraud claim. But, you know, much like the uh, hockey player that you're talking about there, uh, Panini for the, DAC, for the DAC auto pens replaced those. And, you know, again, I think that's the correct result. I mean, again, that's not Panini doing, uh, likely doing anything evil. They're just, you know, the player doesn't know. I, I would like to think the player didn't know what he was doing was wrong, you know, wanted to timely meet his goals and or his, you know, obligations. And that's what happened. And it's, you know, collectors just don't like that. So, yes, if the back of a card says it's certified as being an authentic signature and there's a stamp or an auto pen, that's not right. There, there are legal issues with that. Yeah, and it seems to me like the NHLPA did recognize that and uh, and do something. I think you said Panini, but it was Upper Deck just for just to be uh, clear there. Or the DAC, but the DAC auto, the DAC auto oh, pen was yeah. Oh, Panini. Yeah, sorry, didn't want to no, confuse no you there. No problem. Yeah. Um, okay, Lee Haskins says, "How about issue with game worn jerseys not actually being game worn? Lots of photos and articles on this issue." Have you are you aware of any cases where anyone has brought action against a card company for uh, claiming that a that a piece of memorabilia is game worn when in fact it wasn't? You know, I've not. And again, it would be the same issues for that it would be a breach of contract type claim. But, uh, you know, over, I don't remember what it was five years, six years, seven years ago. The disclaimers on uh, game used memorabilia cards, uh, you know, basically says that, you know, we're not authenticating that this is, you know, ever a piece of ever, you know, ever used anything, whatever it is. I mean, it's it, there's some of the funniest disclaimers uh, ever. Uh, if so. But, you know, if the back of the card says, you know, we are authenticating that this is a game used uh, patch and it wasn't. Uh, you know, that's a potential breach of contract or a, um, a consumer fraud type claim. But you have to read the disclaimer. <laughs> yeah. In all likelihood, the disclaimer says we're not authenticating that this is was ever even worn, you know, in a game. And there's a difference between game use and event worn. Uh, there are a lot of patches that are out there where, you know, they're at a rookie signing and a rookie puts seven jerseys on and they cut those up and, you know, use those for cards. So it's just read the fine print for those. Yeah, the companies have certainly evolved their disclaimer on the back of the cards over the last uh, several years. My favorite is still that every single card that has an autograph or a piece of memorabilia says congratulations on the back of it. I know this, has, this is not a legal issue, but it's almost it's almost patronizing at this point where you can get a jersey card that's worth $1.50 out of your pack 
and it says, congratulations, like you just won the lottery on it. I'm, I'd love to see them just take that word off the back of cards. You yeah. know, we pay our hard-earned money for these cards. You don't need to congratulate us for it. That's just my opinion. I agree. I, I could be in the minority. I, I don't know. Um, here's a comment from Peeps. Uh, we'll get your opinion. In theory, couldn't artificial intelligence resolve the trimming fears? How would AI impact the laws in your opinion? Yeah, that's uh, actually a good point. And it's it's somewhat timely. Uh, this week uh, is either this week or last week, a, a patent actually issued on a automated uh, process for uh, authenticating cards. And it, uh, some of the discussion in there was on using, not necessarily AI, but algorithms to uh, measure the size of cards, look at uh, how the cut uh, of these cards were cut. Uh, so it looks like the industry may at some point be moving more towards an automated process for determining whether cards were trimmed or not. Um, will it fully, you know, get rid of such issues? Uh, again, it's an arms race. You know, once, you know, all you need to do is look at the algorithm and figure out a way to cheat it. So, yes, at some point, this will probably be in the hobby. It will probably stop uh, fraud for a little or trimmed cards for a little bit. But then somebody will be smart enough to figure out how to trim a card and make it look like it came right off the press. Yeah. Makes sense to me. Brian Gray, again, when he made the comment here that the best proof is serial numbered cards and then a card goes, a card numbered out of 99 goes from 70-30 centering to 50-50 centering. Uh, that, that card's no longer going to be wide enough to meet the requirements. I sh I don't think at that point, is it going to be within the tolerance of the size of, uh, of the minimum size requirement that I know PSA? And I've noticed lately, I'm seeing more and more people show PSA uh, results and more and more of these minimum size requirement uh, stickers they're getting on, on their cards. So it seems like that, you know, they're, they're, starting to look closer at that, which I yes. believe is also going to exclude some very uh, uh, legitimate cards as well, because there were different size cards back in the day. Yeah. So quality, yeah, quality control in the seventies and eighties is, you know, not the same as quality control nowadays. So yeah, exactly. I think, I think there's a lot of cards out there that are just naturally weird shaped. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Michael mentions the DAC auto pen. So we got to that one. Thank you, Michael. Uh, Chris says, I'm amazed grading companies don't log serial numbers on graded cards. I get why they don't, but it's still a thing that should be done. I agree with that. I mean, you know, for the extra little expense of putting a serial number on the slab, on the label or the flip, whatever we're calling them these days, I think that would make good sense. I know for with some companies, you can you can add it for an extra fee. But I think that it's almost a no-brainer. It's part of the part of the card at that point. Yeah, it wasn't an auto pen. It was a DSP. Devonte Stampelli used a stamp. We had Doc Prescott was a big auto pen scandal. All right, just looking through some of these comments. Uh, Brian Grace is not against a card company, but against fraudsters who sold jerseys to Upper Deck and made implication that Steve Ryan at Upper Deck knew. So I think what he's saying is that. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll let Brian Gray say what he's saying. I won't. I don't need to restate it, but um, that can happen, I'm sure. Actually, a fennel, a, there was a felony criminal action that came from that. All right, I like this. What if they changed congratulations to hooray? Uh, you know what? I'd rather you cheer for me than congratulate me. So yeah, I'm okay with that, hockey guy 2006, for sure. Brian Gray says, on card doctoring, people are flatting, flat, flatting or flattening the card to make oversized, oh, so they're flattening it, putting pressure to expand the card so they can trim down the card and still measure. Wow. So that's a that's a technique that I wasn't necessarily aware of. And boy, is that something that we got to be on the lookout for. 
right? Right. That's for that's sure. It's, I mean, it, it's funny. I mean, just going to that whole arms race of, you know, once they have uh, some type of security feature, somebody figures out, figures out a way to beat it. And that's, you know, I mean, it's blowing my mind, too. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we, we hear about cards that have been in those big Lucite bricks for decades. And people, you know, people often say that uh, if your card has been squished by one of these things, you're going to have an issue with the with grading because the card has flattened. So this that comment makes good sense. Leave it to, to Brian to know what is going on with the ins and outs of the hobby. Brian, thank you for the comment. Definitely adds to the con to the to the quality tonight. Okay, let's. Uh, well, he says then they measure uh, the thickness. That's easy. Okay, <laughs> easy, easy for easy for hockey guy two thousand six. I don't know how easy it is for the grading companies, but uh, you got there. There has to be some way to to uh, to identify that. Okay, let's go on to the next uh, topic on our list, which is, and I don't know anything about this, but you say, you told me it, American Disability Act claims. What does this have, what does a disability act have to do with uh, sports cards? So uh, the first act, the first time that this popped up had to do with the uh, Dwight Gooden Project 2020 card that, uh, you know, I originally showed uh, here. It was, it was a lawsuit brought against Topps uh, on behalf of a visually impaired individual who said that uh, he tried to get onto Topps' website, he tried to purchase a card, and was unable to. Uh, so the ADA has requirements that uh, a website should be accessible by the visually impaired. Uh, there are a lot of lawsuits that are out there, as you can imagine. Uh, there are a lot of lawsuits that are out there. So this lawsuit was filed in 2020. And uh, at the time the lawsuit was filed, you know, I put out some, you know, hints and tweets out there that, you know, manufacturers and other people in the hobby um, be on the lookout. Uh, this is just the first. And uh, it was. Uh, over the last uh, month or so, uh, Upper Deck was sued, Panini was sued, Beckett was sued, um, PSA was sued, uh, Cryptozoic was recently, I think it was sued Friday. Uh, so all sued for the same, re for the same reasons that uh, their web pages allegedly were not uh, ADA compliant. And uh, I understand that, you know, this is from, a man from the manufacturer standpoint, it's kind of a tough issue. Uh, when it comes to certain ADA requirements, uh, they are they are explicitly explained uh, in the uh, American Disability Act statute of what you need to do to uh, comply. When it comes to web pages and how web pages are going to be compliant to the visually impaired, uh, it, there's less it, since it's a newer topic. The case law really hasn't developed what are those requirements, so there is a gray area uh, that's out there. Uh, but, you know, uh, when it comes to manufacturers or somebody who hasn't been sued on this yet, look at the complaint, uh, see what's actually in there, uh, see what's being alleged, uh, make sure your website actually does what's required uh, or what they say is required in there. And that's probably in, uh, the easiest way to avoid being sued. Okay. So is, is that all there is to this uh, specific topic then? Like, do you think we're going to see anything come out of it? Or are they just going to tweak their website and get on with their day? I think uh, they'll. The, I think all these issues will settle confidentially. I think their websites will uh, change, and uh, it would not shock me if every single uh, participant in the hobby, every manufacturer, uh, at some point uh, is either named as a defendant or uh, rapidly changes their website. <laughs> so, the, so the ambulance chasers out there in the website uh, in, in the website business, uh, there, there's some projects for you to get out there and help help our hobby become yeah. ADA compliant. 
Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, back to the last topic. Hockey guy says, go to a machine shop, find an, an inspector. They can measure the cards. There are people that do that measure the thickness of things all day long. <laughs> I'm sure there are. I'm sure there are. And then Kickdown says, just for a for a little comedic interlude, I'd rather lick stamps and measure card thickness. <laughs> back to the most recent one. Brian Gray says, I believe our website is now compliant. Good to hear, nice. uh, Brian and Gray. Leaf has not been sued yet. Yeah. Well, and, and if their website is fig, and he goes on to say it was a very easy fix. So hopefully yeah. everyone else uh, jumps on board with that. And uh, we don't need to hear about this one again, or just that it's been satisfied and everyone has caught up with where they need to be. Good, good. Yeah. Okay. So the next one, uh, and it's timely that we have Brian Gray with us. The next one is Leaf versus Upper Deck and Upper Deck versus Leaf. Why yeah. don't you let us know what this is about? I'm sure Brian might... Brian, you're welcome to comment. I'll put them up on the screen if you have anything to add, but let's let uh, Paul get us started. Yeah, this is, uh, it's a lawsuit that we talked about uh, last time we were on the show. Uh, and uh, it's its unfortunate because it's, uh, this case is a, a victim of COVID uh, because it was ready for trial. Uh, it was going to go to trial and Brian could can correct me, but I think it was either early April or late March of uh, 2020. Uh, the basis of this lawsuit, uh, it's a upper deck suing Leaf and Leaf suing upper deck. Uh, Leaf is suing upper deck, alleging that there were uh, antitrust issues uh, with uh, the way that uh, upper deck deals with its distributors with uh, hockey product. And uh, Upper Deck was suing Leaf, saying that Leaf was using some of its exclusive athletes uh, that, that it's not allowed, that it shouldn't be using. So this lawsuit's been going on for years. Uh, I think it's been going on since 2017. Um, it's been in multiple courts. It's been consolidated. There's been lots of issues, lots of depositions, lots of money spent on this. And it was ready to go to trial. And uh, but then COVID came. Uh, and it's been delayed. Uh, not only has it it's been delayed, but I believe the current trial date is uh, late 2021. Uh, it may even be December of 2021. So, uh, and that's quite disappointing. I am a trial attorney. I love going to trial. Um, and there is nothing worse than getting, you know, stepping on that courthouse steps, getting ready to go and you lose your trial date because there's so much that goes into a trial. There's so many moving parts. There's so many people involved and you're on, when you walk into that courtroom, you are on and you are ready. And then if you have to hit pause, you're not ready. <laughs> you're, the next thing you know, six months pass and you got to do it all again. And, uh, you know, I feel really bad for uh, Brian and, you know, actually for, you know, Upper Deck not being able to, you know, both of them get their stories out there. But I especially feel bad for the lawyers uh, because they were ready to go. That's what they live for. And, you know, now it's, gosh, 18 months, 18 month delay, if not, if not longer. So Brian does let us know that December 1st, 2021, I guess that's the, the next date we're going to, that something's going to happen. Yeah. So yeah. there you go. That's that's I guess that's either your trial date or you're ready for trial date. Uh, and that's, you know, it's, hopefully COVID's uh, all dealt with there uh, all over. And, uh, you know, that was one of those lawsuits where if I got have any free time or any ability, I, I definitely want to go down and be in the courtroom and watch that one. No doubt. Well, keep us posted on that one. 
Uh, I'm going to go back to a call comment from Colin Murray, back to the trimming issue. He says, many of the early Parkhurst were oversized. So Parkhurst hockey, 50, 1951, I think he's mostly referring to. And Gary Moser. And Gary Moser is the person, is the name. It rings a bell to me. I think he's the, the person who's kind of known for trimming the cards himself. Kind of the, the main, one of the main trimmers in the hobby. And so not someone that we're happy with. Uh, he would trim them to size which got by PSA because the size was correct at that point in time. So interesting to know that cards can be trimmed to size, trimmed down to the proper size if they were oversized to begin with. And that happened back in those days due to quality control at the time. Or I wouldn't even call it quality control as much as just consistency. Quality control wasn't important back then. No one was no one was trying to gem mint their cards back then. You just wanted the card for your binder and you put stick you, you put glue on the back to put it in the album. So yeah. Size didn't matter, right? Or, or I mean, you put it on your, you know, bike spokes. I mean, <laughs> even even more, exactly, even worse for sure, for sure. Um, okay, yeah, Brian says that's the date, that's the trial date. So there we go. Good. Good. Lunch, lunch is on him. Uh, Chris <laughs> says Gary Moser is one of the biggest trimmers, volume wise. Uh, yeah, uh, thanks, Chris. Uh, I was aware of that. Appreciate it though. Uh, okay. So let's let's go on to the next topic then, which is also has to do with Leaf. I don't know anything about it, but you mentioned something to me about uh, Leaf and a trademark registration. What's going on there? So uh, unfortunately, uh, Leaf had a trademark uh, registration on Leaf. Uh, obviously, every company is going to get their trade name, uh, their company name trademarked. Uh, unfortunately, the uh, trademark registration lapsed. And this happens uh, more often than you think. Uh, in, in the United States, you have to, uh, after a certain amount of time, uh, you have to submit a use declaration saying, I have used this mark in commerce and you have to pay a certain amount of money. Because you don't get tr a trademark registration in the US unless you are actually using that trademark in commerce. You're actually selling it. Uh, so um, Leaf attempted to uh, re-get its trademark registration back. Um, but in the in the meantime, there was a company uh, out there that uh, came uh, came out with a its own trademark registration for a Dungeons and Dragons character named Molly Mock Tea Leaf. Now the important thing is as Leaf at the end. Um, that registration uh, covered everything under the sun, including trading cards. Uh, unfortunately for Leaf, that trademark application was filed before Leaf filed its second Leaf trademark application. So the uh, trademark examiners told Leaf, you can't get your trademark yet. We're going to put it on hold because this other one's going to go to issue. And so the trademark office granted the Molly Mock Tea Leaf trademark registration, which Leaf is now opposing. Uh, and this is, you know, I think this is going to probably work out well in Leaf's favor. Uh, I, I, again, I try to collect cards involved in lawsuits. So I immediately went out to try and find a Molly Mock Tea Leaf uh, trading card. There aren't any. So I would think a company uh, like this who's trying to probably just trademark the name for multiple reasons, if they don't have a trademark, if they don't have a trading card, they're not going to want to be involved in a lawsuit over getting a trading card. So I imagine if they're smart, they will just amend their application, uh, remove that, and uh, Leaf will return victorious to having a uh, its own trademark registration uh, for for its company's name. It's kind of funny. 
that it happens. And you know, it's I know I, I know a lot of people were kind of making fun of Leaf for the fact that their uh, trade name did uh, expire, but it ha it happens all the time. It's a common thing that happens in the corporate world. So I, I don't hold it against them that that happens, but it's, it is worth, it's worth a chuckle for me. Probably not for Brian though. <laughs> yeah. Well, what, 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 I chuckle a little bit because I had Brian on last Saturday and he meant like, he's well aware of this, of this issue because he just purchased the ProSet brand, the ProSet oh, yeah. trademark. And yeah. he mentioned on the show that, you know, you have to use the trademark to keep it alive. So he's well aware of, of these laws. And I'm surprised it slipped past him. But as he mentions right there, it will be resolved imminently. So happy to hear, Brian. Good. Yeah, I'll, I will be monitoring. And as soon as I see uh, what I predict that their uh, application will remove trading cards, I will, uh, you know, duly report it. <laughs> <laughs> That's uh, that's pretty. Uh, sorry, BG, but a little bit funny. But hopefully, it all works out and doesn't cost you much money to fix. Um, but uh, or it might have already been not been rectified, as he says. So good, good on you, um, and good luck with. And, and we're glad to see ProSet back as well, and that yep. you were able to 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 nail down that brand for your, for the Leaf family. Okay, sticking on the topic of trademark registrations, you mentioned uh, to me last week that there's been a whole bunch by. Panini and Upper Deck recently. Just again, this, this having you on the show for everybody watching is about staying apprised of what is going on in the the legal world of the hobby and um, and 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 the, the overall landscape. And trademarks are a part of it. Companies are always coming up with new names for insert sets, sets, brands, all these things. What can you tell us uh, about this, Paul? What are what are Panini and Upper Deck up to in terms of trademark registrations lately? There's really right now, there's a land grab going on uh, in the trading card world where a lot of, you know, Panini has filed a large, large number of trademarks. Uh, and it looks like they filed trademarks on every word they've ever used on a card. Um, you know, Upper Deck uh, decided to follow through and try, try and start doing that, but not to the level that uh, Panini's done it. In fact, I've got some of uh, some of the uh, trademark, some of the words that uh, Panini filed for it, filed for the word threads, legacy, choice, unparalleled, cornerstones, majestic, stars and stripes, eminence, kaboom, encased. I mean, they, they're, they're filing on all these, you know, some of these are filings I think are, you know, are correct. Like, Elite Extra Edition. That makes sense. That's a product that when you think of Elite Extra Edition, you think of Panini, uh, Color Blast, Opulence. You know, these these are, you know, products that you think of when you think of Panini. But then there are some on there that I just, you know, question the filing, like threads. Um, when I think of the word threads, I think of Topps triple threads. Me too. And that's that's a product that, uh, you know, Topps has a trademark registration for triple threads. Yet, Panini is fighting over whether it should be able to get threads. And it's my position that you can't coexist. You cannot have a trademark on trademark registration on threads exist with a trademark registration on triple threads. Um, amusingly, uh, the trademark office, uh, they're, they're, the Panini's filings to try to get this emphasizes that there's a different amount of words and syllables where they actually say for threads, you know, threads is one syllable, whereas triple threads is three syllables. And uh, I don't remember who it was, but somebody pretty funny on Twitter says, you know, I really hope Panini's attorneys like standing before the examiner and going triple threads, 
threads, you know, doing claps for each because, I mean, that's the best use of a $500 per hour attorney. Um, <laughs> but the reason this affects everybody is because um, if a company gets a trademark registration on a word like this, they are basically removing it from the lexicon of any other company. So do you want, uh, you know, Panini to be the only company to use the word threads or legacy or choice or encased? I mean, there is, you know, some of these words are descriptive and I don't think they should be owned by any one company. And some of these words are, you know, part of, uh, you know, other phrases that other companies own. So that being said, you know, Panini's filed 40 or 50 of these uh, trademark uh, applications and they've received at least 30 of them. So their strategy is working. They are removing a lot of words from the lexicon from others. Upper Tech recently uh, started to do this too with uh, filings on, you, theirs are more focused on product names, OPG, Premier, uh, you know, things that you would actually associate with Upper Deck. So I think they're doing it right. Uh, but uh, Panini's just, you know, filing on any word that's out there. Uh, there are, uh, there is recourse out there for other manufacturers. If the trademark office would grant one of these words, manufacturers can oppose it. Uh, they can uh, you know, say, hey, here's our products. You need to actually shoot this one down. Um, the first couple rounds of Panini's uh, uh, trademarks, though, the manufacturers sat on their hands and did nothing. And where I thought that was, um, you know, most concerning was with uh, XRC. Uh, XRC is terminology, you know, it's been used by, you know, Beckett, maybe in the 80s, uh, maybe the 90s for, um, you know, extended rookie card. Uh, it's a generic term that's out there. Uh, but nobody opposed it. So Panini now owns a trademark registration for XRC. Uh, that's theirs. Uh, so, you know, I think some manufacturers should have opposed that. They didn't. I think Beckett should have opposed it. They didn't. Uh, but, you know, as long as Panini's allowed to keep grabbing stuff and nobody's going to stand in their way. I mean, it's a, and I'm actually impressed by Panini here because I thought a lot of these filings were I, I probably called them stupid. I'm yeah. certain I called them stupid. But, you know, if it works and they actually get the words and they're removed and nobody else can use them, it's a brilliant legal strategy then. Yeah, the XRC one, it, it sort of bothers me just simply because it's a term that we we use as collectors, you know, when we're not talking about a manufacturer or a brand of card. We're talking about we're talking about all brands of cards over all years, pretty much when, when we use that term, or at least it was it was more prevalent in the 80s. But uh yeah, that, that one's a little somewhat offensive, I would say, uh, just to, to the hobby overall. It's it's like it's like going for the word rookie card, you know. Funny you say that because uh, one of their filings is for the rookies. <laughs> I'm sure, yeah, the rookies was another one of their filings. Uh, but so far, the trademark office isn't letting them get that one. Uh, but yeah, they, I mean, they have another filing for the word one, O N E, one. <laughs> so. I mean, wow. So you could never take a card and instead of putting digits on the back and the sequential numbering of the cards within a set, you couldn't switch it from like the numbers one and two to the to, to the letters to spelling out those numbers. Not that you would want to, but that would be a unique change within a, a sports card. So they uh, so it would have to be used in a trademark type usage. So the name of the card would have to be one or something uh, like that. Uh, but I mean, but they uh, you know there are actually numbers of filings on one of one. Uh, tops filed for one of one. <laughs> so they're not going to get that one. 
No. Okay, good Good to know that they won't, <laughs> good to know, because there's another one that we use for, we use across all brands and, and, and companies. So, okay, want to say hello to Bob Lewis. You've been hanging out, enjoying the conversation. Much appreciated. Auburn35 has a question for you. Paul, do you have a number one chase card that's missing from your cards involved in lawsuits collection? I do. <laughs> so uh, back uh, when I uh, first started covering uh, uh, the hobby, uh, there was a triple threads card for uh, John Henry, the steel driving man. There was only five of these cards uh, that was made. And uh, a lawsuit was brought uh, on this card uh, because a, a former Topps employee uh, was pictured on the card. And uh, he uh, says that uh, he alleged that there weren't uh, he didn't give rights to tops to use his image uh, on the card um, card. Uh, the lawsuit settled confidentially, uh, but uh, there's only five of these cards that were out there. And this is 2010 or 2011, I believe, is, is, is when it was uh, when it was out there. And I wasn't a as big of a spender on eBay as I, you know, currently am because of Project 2020 now. But the card popped up, one of these cards popped up on eBay and it was $200. And my dumb collecting self said, okay, if it's $200 now, the product was just released, there'll be another one of these will pop up and it'll be less than $200 and I'll get that one. Well, to this day, I have not seen, I've got three different searches set up on eBay to ping if that card ever shows up. I so should have bought that card and I regret not uh, buying that card. But that's the number one card that I'm chasing, that I'm looking for. Um, it's my white whale. And I don't know if I'm ever going to get it because, I mean, very, very well, what could have happened is uh, during that lawsuit, Tops could have found all the cards, collected them and burned them. I mean, they might not exist. So... Uh, yeah, if I can go back in a time machine, that's the card I would, you know, shell out 210 bucks for and go get now. <laughs> so let me ask you this follow-up question, Paul. Are you ever going to stop searching for it? No, no, I am not. I mean, that's and, until somebody confirms all five of them were burned. Yeah. I, I will never stop. I mean, I have actually tweeted out there uh, a couple times and said, hey, if anybody has these cards, I am willing to get ripped off. Please tell me I want <laughs> this card. So about every six months I do post out there that I'm looking for this card. Uh, but nobody's uh, nobody's ever told me that they uh, own it or would want to part with it. Please, somebody fleece me on this darn thing. Yeah, yeah really. I will overpay. <laughs> I hear you. All right. I, this, I think this is Nick says, I hope Leaf does a retro card of the hologram, the Stanley Cup hologram from ProSet. Back to Brian Gray Leaf and, and having the ProSet brand. The Stanley Cup hologram, Paul, I don't know if you're aware, limited to 5,000 copies, was like the first real chase insert card if in hockey, if not in the whole hobby, in my opinion. And uh, it's kind of like the most important card from the pro set era. And uh, we did talk about it last week with Brian Gray. He said, you know, he's not going to use the Stanley Cup, but but there could be a nice companion type card to come out for it. So we'll, we'll watch for that. But uh, if that was you, Nick, um, thank you for the comment. And I think it was Nick because I hear someone down here say, uh, Nick, no, Lord, no, just leave that alone. Never do it again. The hologram will grow in legend value and nostalgia. Very fair. Uh, Brian Gray says that Legacy's first use was was in was in Fleer, which is now owned by Upper Deck. Back to the trademark issue, and you mentioned Legacy in, in the list of uh, of trademark applications you, that you were talking about. Here's and Legacy, and, and, and Legacy, is, Legacy is currently rejected by the trademark office. Uh, at least last time I checked, it was. So there, the trademark office is at least doing a good job there, but. If legacy is ultimately allowed by the trademark office, I would really hope that Upper Deck would step up and uh, oppose it. Yeah, same here. I'm sure they would. Well, you got to think. 
Yeah. Ryan Gray says many of these have prior use, many of those names, which which of course makes good yeah. sense. But it's but like you said, Panini's being very aggressive. So just because there's prior use, if their competition is asleep at the wheel, you know, go for it. Why not take a chance? Yeah. You, no. you, might, you might get one of these things and really and damage your competition. It's great legal strategy because I would not have thought to do it. <laughs> you yeah. know, and the fact that they're doing it and it's working for them, you know, power, power tool. Power, yeah. Lee Haskins says, I heard eBay would not allow users to sell a basketball card with the Menendez brothers in the background audience courtside. Is that legal? Uh, eBay, uh, you agree to their terms of uh, or their terms, terms and conditions uh, when you uh, you know register an account there. Uh, and um, I, I don't know it word for word, but it basically says eBay has ultimate choice in deciding what's listed and what's not listed. So uh, given that it, it probably falls into a immoral or a scandalous type uh, exception for products that they don't want up there, uh, it's legal for eBay to uh, to, to, to actually not uh, allow those cards to be sold. Okay, fair enough. Uh, Michael says, can you give an example of an ADA compliant website? I'll just say, I think Brian Gray mentioned that his was, the LEAF website was. Do you have any others, anything come to mind for you, Paul? I don't. Uh, this isn't an area that I uh, practice in, uh, it's, and, it, it's, and it's a developing one. So, uh, the, you know, my my advice, if somebody asked me for you know what would be a compliant website, would be to look at uh, the complaint, look at what the plaintiffs in these cases say is missing from the websites. That might be a little overboard. Uh, but then again, you're making your you're making new consumers happy. You're opening up your website to uh, more you know p more people potentially buying your products. So uh, that's that's where I'd start to look at it. Uh, but yeah, allegedly Leaf is uh, an ADA compliant website. Okay, question from Toa for you for the legal mind that you are. Why isn't an exclusive license such as the NBA for Panini or Madden for video games not a monopoly? It might be a monopoly, but it might be a legal monopoly. Uh, monopolies aren't necessarily illegal in the United States unless they're doing something unlawful. Um, and so that's really what's looking, you know, what you're looking at here. Uh, you can you can decide who you want to do business with so long as you're not illegally hurting other companies uh, with that. So I, you know, I've always kind of had issues with uh, exclusive licenses. Uh, with leagues, mainly because I'm a collector and I like competition. Uh, so that kind of colors my, my legal view of it. But uh, it's, just a, it's just a contractual issue. You need to have those additional wrongful steps afterwards uh, to, to, to make something like that uh, illegal. Okay, thank you for that. Very interesting. Uh, Brian says, with respect to doing another Stanley Cup hologram, says we would never do it. Maybe Lord Stanley himself. So there's one of the ideas that they're obviously uh, toying with, probably uh, back with Greg Cohn at, and, and BG are probably talking about that. So I think that's a pretty cool idea, Brian. I think that would be a nice companion piece for the uh, the original hologram, of which I'm a big fan of. And I, I own about three copies of it right now. So I'd love to pair it with... Uh, but you got to make, if Brian, make the back look similar to the back of the original because it's so unique, you know, keep, keep, keep it as close as you can. Just change the front. That'd be super cool. Super cool. I'd love it. I'll go for, I'll chase it for sure. For sure. Uh, Brian says exclusives are legal when you, when you use them to stifle all competition of any kind, though, no longer legal. It makes that's sense. That to you, yeah, that's an additional step that you need. Uh, so just just having a contract where two companies are deciding only to do business with themselves is fine, so long as you're not doing that next step of hurting other competition, uh, you know, in unlawful ways. 
Okay. Here's a here's like a question. Price, like price fixing or something like that. Right. Okay. Question here from Global Sports Card Investor. Good day there, guys. Good day to you, Global Sports Card Investor. He says, how can the industry as a whole protect against fraudulent sales? Now, I think I think what he's getting at, and correct me if I'm wrong, Global Sports Card Investor, but I think what he's getting at is that we see there could be sales that are not actually being consummated or that has been, you know, like that there was some uh, just on social media, I saw a lot of skepticism towards the Luca logo man for $4.6 million saying, you know, even though they showed the check and they they came out with it, is this thing legit? Uh, just as an example of some skepticism that's out there, but also, you know, obviously there's shilling, shill bidding that goes on. And we see we see the same the same eBay sellers relisting the same cards over and over again. Um, I'll let you just take the question from there with that context. Yeah, it, it, it's it's difficult uh, that you know each platform has their own protections. Uh, shill bidding, if you see shill bidding on say eBay or something like that, you can report it uh, to eBay and they can uh, police it for you. Uh, auctions, shill bidding. Uh, I do remember there were some lawsuits uh, by the uh, by the FBI by the the government against uh, a number of. Uh, uh, People, uh, auction houses or people involved in auction houses who were doing shill bidding. So shill bidding, shill bidding in an auction is illegal. Um, so I mean, there are you know protections that are built in. You just have to identify it and report it. Uh, that's that's probably the best the best way to handle it. You're never going to eliminate it all. Uh, you're going to miss some. Uh, it's it's too large of a hobby with too many people to catch every instance. But if you see it, report it. Okay, so. That's what we can do, guys, I guess, is continue to report suspicious activities as we see them. And I think there's a big segment of the hobby that does that. So kudos to them for looking out for everybody else who just uh, doesn't, <laughs> who just doesn't uh, go ahead and do that, right? Yeah. Yeah. But you know what? I'll, I'll caution people, though. You know, uh, there are times when something might look like a shill bid that just isn't a shill bid. And I know sometimes my bidding style on a card I think about it afterwards, I think that could be looked at as shill bidding, except that I don't have zero or under 10 feedback. I'm in the thousands. So I think it's less suspicious to an observer or someone who's looking at the bid history. But I will chip away at a higher bid all, all the time. Like, you know, if there's a card that is currently at $50 and I want, I'll bid 55, I'll bid 60, I'll get outbid, 65 outbid, 70 outbid, I'll keep going until I just stop. Sometimes I'll also do something where I'm willing, you know, I'm willing to to pay like say it's up to five hundred dollars, but I don't want to pay five hundred. Someone else can pay five hundred, so I'll bid four ninety nine point nine nine, which mm -hmm. to a lot of people looks like a shill bid, because well, why wouldn't you just bid five hundred? Well, I didn't want to pay five hundred. I'll let someone else hit that five hundred. I'm willing to pay anything up to five hundred. So sometimes what looks like something like suspicious activity may not be. So you have to really kind of. I've seen people say things like. Why, why would you do that? Why would you? Well, it, there's reasons. You just don't have it within your mental capacity to formulate those reasons at this time because you're not in that person's head. Again, just a caution to people, you know, if, before we throw out accusations, let's just be a little bit careful. And, and that's the, the accusations are something that, that really troubles me because there are lawsuits that can be filed for business disparagement or you know even libel or slander. And I've seen uh, a lot of people start posting about here's a bad eBay buyer or a bad eBay seller. You know, they offer to return, never do business with this 
never do business with this person. Um, that's not the type of reporting that I would encourage people to do. If you know, if you if it's on eBay, report it to eBay. If you do it online like that as a public shaming uh, and people stop doing business with somebody, if you are wrong, uh, you're opening yourself up to a business disparagement potential suit or a libel or a slander suit. Now, I haven't seen anything like that in the hobby, but I don't think it, we're far off from seeing something like that because there's so much public shaming versus rather you know approaching the actual auction runner, you know eBay or whoever's running the auction to report it. Somebody who can actually do something about it. And just the magnitude of dollars that we're dealing in now uh, is going to cause more and more, you know, more of those public shaming or those false accusations, if they are false, are going to be more costly to the victim of that accusation. So we can see more people defending themselves, you know, rightfully so at that point. Question from different topic, but similarly interesting. Lee Haskins says, what is your thought on the new tax law, which I don't think it's a tax law on eBay. It's just eBay actually enforcing some tax law or being forced to enforce tax law. Anyway, for reporting 1099s, which is an income slip, will that change the hobby of selling cards on eBay? What are your thoughts on that, Paul? That, you know, that's, you know, I remember my uh, uh, income tax class from uh, law school. I mean, this is 1996. And uh, the, uh, you know, the, the take home of the first day was whatever income you get from whatever source, the U.S. government wants to tax that. Uh, when you're selling cards on eBay and you're making a profit off those cards, the U.S. government wants to tax that. And it, since it is income to you, it is taxable. Uh, I, I know there's a lot of uh, people out there that don't necessarily know that. Or if they do know that, they try to hide it because eBay is not issuing 1099s. When a 1099 is issued, it's reported to the federal government that this person had a certain amount of sales. So the federal government knows to look for this. The federal government doesn't automatically look for eBay sales for people, and they can't. They don't know what your handles are or you know what your names are. But this is a way that now is brought to the attention of the, the IRS. Typically, they used to issue 1099s. I don't know if it was for $10,000 a month. There was a threshold where 1099s were always issued um, for, for a higher threshold. The threshold's been reduced. Uh, so, yes, you know, I mean, you were always required to report uh, your sales, the income you receive from sales. You just got lucky now. <laughs> You're lucky until now. And now that it's reported, you know, definitely, uh, you know, Give it to your tax person or make sure you include it in your taxes because the the u.s government you know you're making money they want their they want their portion of it my understanding is that the threshold was reduced from ten thousand to six hundred dollars i don't know if that's annual or monthly most most likely it's annually i would think but um you know i i there's a lot of talk in the hobby about this at this point in time but to the second part of lee's question you know will this change the sale the selling of cards you know it doesn't make it as lucrative if you have to share your profit with the government, even if you've been required to do so all along. I mean, it, it's anyone's opinion what's going to happen from that. But also, you know, what what about like, this is eBay. We There's a lot of cash business in the hobby. What about cash business? And I mean, I've got a bit of tax experience. I do believe that it doesn't matter what form you're doing your business. You're If you're, if you are, transacting and, and doing business with the intention of earning a profit, you are likely taxable on all of your profits within the hobby. But this means you get to now claim expenses that you, you know, travel to shows, of course, buying your inventory, probably your cell phone bill, 
your vehicle expenses, home office, you probably are able to claim a lot of this to reduce the taxable income from just, you know, your, 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 your gross, your, from going from gross margin to net margin. Right. Um, any, any sort of thoughts on that? Yeah. Then also the sales of cards where you didn't make any money and you lost right. money. There's, there's an offset. There's an uh, offset. So, I mean, yes, I mean, it, it definitely for, I'd say, a casual user who is, you know, flipping cards to try to, you know, keep, you know, keep staying in the hobby. Well, you know, you'd always lose your eBay fees. You're already, if you make $100, you actually made $90. Well, now, depending on your income tax bracket, you may lose another $18, another $27 uh, off of that. So just keep that in mind. You know, your, your, your $100 sale is actually a $60 sale. Uh, don't spend it all. Save some of it for the tax man. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And of course, you're in the US talking about US tax law and issues to the extent that you're, you know, you're what you remember from 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 your original uh, tax courses. And yeah. I'm up in Canada. So it's you're gonna have different, uh, different laws in both countries, for sure. So yeah, with whatever country you're in, don't necessarily take this as uh, as tax advice that applies to you, especially if you're listening to listening to Paul when it comes to Canada or me when it comes to the US. Not that I've given any advice here tonight. Okay, uh, back to some Don't more break problems. <laughs> Don't break the law. <laughs> Don't break. There you go. There you go. Report your income. Um, back to some comments. Brian Gray, uh, with respect to shill bidding, says interesting shill bidding, or in brackets, he says house bidding is legal in Arizona so mm-hmm. long as auctioneers share this possibility in the official rules. Um, I, I get it. My question is: Is Arizona the only state that allows this? And what do you know about this, Paul? I I, I just learned something. <laughs> I did not know shield bidding was legal so long as you disclose. I mean, I guess I mean, I, I guess if you have terms and conditions that explains that we're allowing certain practices, uh, you could you can get around laws with con- contracts. But uh, yeah, I don't know. Be be careful uh, from Arizona-based auctions. Apparently, well, really, what I think it is is there. You know, you're, it allows the auction house to set a reserve in in a way. And I'm not advocating for it one way or the other. But that's I think sort of perhaps is what some of the rationale for that might be. All right, uh, Bobby says now some sellers block their bidders' names list, so you can't even tell who the bidder is and how much feedback they. Have. Although you can still see the feedback ranking, you just can't see the the. Oh no, I think even that might be blinded out now. Oh, wow. When you go to private bidding, I believe private bidding you can't see anything. So, yeah, good point, Bobby. Thanks for bringing that up. Uh, Corey Carr says there's a fair amount of shill building in '90s hockey cards right now. So. When, when, and, and Corey, you know, no offense, but when a comment like that is made, that implies that you have evidence of it. And I'm not saying it isn't happening. You know, I'm not that naive to think it isn't happening. But I want, you know, uh, it, it's it's a claim without evidence, I have to think. And um, I'm not a big fan of it on the show, but I get it. I get it. It's there's there's definitely something going on. There's more. I won't say definitely. There's most likely something going on out there. Toa, thank you very much for the comment. Facebook user, tonight, huge talk about it around the artifacts. Minnesota Wild Redemption is hitting $1,600 more than Sid and Connor. Awesome. Corey Carr says, guys are driving up Hassock and Lidstrom raw rookies up to $90 on shill bids. All right, behind the tanks. Jeremy would be interested to know your reasoning for chipping away during an auction. I've never thought it would be to the buyer's advantage to do anything other than snipe at auction. Sometimes I will, if it's you know about five minutes left and I may not be able to set a, a, a snipe later on, I will just kind of test things and see where it's at, you know, and I'll, sometimes I just get excited and I'll, so I'll bid 55. Nope. Outbid 56 is the new, new bid. 
I'll bid 57. Nope. And I'll just keep on kind of, it's almost like, I don't know what it is. I don't know why. I'm sure I'm not. I can't be alone in this, but sometimes I'll just keep on bidding the next minimum bid just to see if if, if I'm going to take the high bid from the other, from the, the, the previous high bidder. And if I do, great. You know, I'm going to buy the card. If I don't, then I, I eventually stop. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not one of these, you'll never see me bidding you know, more than probably six times, let's say, or even five times chipping away at a, at a high bidder, but I will chip away here and there. I mean, it's just, it's a, it's a bid style and it's totally legal and within the, within the, within the terms of, of auction. So, but that's really why it's, it's, it's just to test and see where things are at on the card. Uh, okay. Uh, JJ, do you see a day when politicians start regulating online breakers? Paul. I, I have a, uh, when uh, I, I've always questioned the legality of breakers. Uh, I, so uh, this is an issue. I am not an expert on uh, online sweep on sweepstakes laws or contest laws. So I uh, wrote an article uh, six, seven years ago uh, where I brought on uh, somebody who is an online uh, sweepstakes expert and um, the article's out there and I'll, I'll probably post it later if anyone's interested again. Uh, but you know, there's a lot of things that you need to do to co to comply with sweepstakes and contest laws for breakers, and um, you know, with online breakers and you have potential breaks going on in 50 states, it's going to be very difficult to comply with all 50 laws. So I've always thought breakers breaks were illegal. I've always thought there was a opportunity that um, the some you know prosecutor would eventually go after them. I think. In 2012, I think my bold prediction for 2013 was that some uh, somebody will prosecute a breaker, and here we are eight years later, and it's never happened. So it, the possibilities out there, I just think there's a lot of other things that prosecutors rather look at than uh, than online breaking. Yeah. Okay. Well, I guess time time will tell, right? Uh, the clock yeah. doesn't stop ticking on that. Um, Lee, I like this comment. Great show. Never heard a legal show on sports cards. Really liked it. Thank you Thank for joining Lee. Glad you enjoyed. Compliment to Paul there. Uh, JJ says, have you ever litigated a dispute between a breaker and a consumer? I think the answer to that is simply no. No, no, I, I, I actually have not even seen a lawsuit filed on that because uh, you'd imagine there are many instances of accused fraud uh, where a breaker with breakers and you would think some of those issues would eventually be litigated. But I've, I've never even seen a lawsuit filed. That doesn't mean it hasn't happened. Uh, I can see every federal case that's filed. I can see some state court cases that are filed, but I can't see everything uh, that's out there. Fair, fair. Uh, Mr. DeWeedy says, has anyone sued a grading company for false turnaround times? What are your thoughts on that? And that, that's, that's a timely question. It's, uh, you know, that, that would turn on uh, another breach of contract uh, type action. Uh, if there's a contract with a uh, grading company that says we will turn around in a certain amount of time and they don't, you could potentially file a uh, breach of contract action uh, or a consumer fraud type action against a company uh, for that. Uh, if there is no disclosed time period, uh, you're pretty much at the mercy of those companies, though. Uh, you would need to have an explicit time that's given, and they would have to explicitly violate that. But then, you know, really, what are your damages? I mean, I, I, I could see people saying that, well, my time to flip this rookie have already passed and he's already bottomed out. Uh, but the, the damages are so speculative in, in a case like that. It'd be, I, I think it'd be pretty difficult to, to actually find, file and win. 
Well, and then the opposite has been true. You know, if you send in cards to the grading companies, uh, you know, a year ago, and you're just getting them back now, you may be benefiting greatly that you didn't get them back last May or June and sell them then. So, you know, you're not exactly giving them back the money that they that that you got because of them. So, that's the lawsuit I would like to see. Yeah. <laughs> For sure, for sure. Paul laughs at me. Says I admit to problem gambling on chipping away at bids. Yeah, you're, kind of, you're kind of like you're chasing, right? You're at that point. It's like you're just chasing your own money. But luckily, every you know, with every bid that doesn't put you at the high bidder, you're not out anything. You haven't bought anything yet. Terry does the same thing. Calls it nibbling. I've heard that term before. Nibbling away at someone's high bid. I'm not alone. Terry does that too. Very good, Terry. Uh, John Sportscar says, what about zero oversight on PSA? Why has no one legally looked at that? So I think we just talked about, about that comment. So, and when you say zero oversight on PSA, I don't know what regulatory body would have oversight on PSA, except for their board of directors, uh, their shareholders. And obviously that has all changed with the, the recent going private that's happened with Nat Turner and his group of investors. So they're really, it's really just the board of directors, uh, even uh, for a private company that would have oversight over PSA. And yeah, there's, EGF. There's no, yeah, there's no government uh, oversight that would be required for anything like that. Uh, so, I mean, the only, you know, oversight would be uh, someone who thinks that they've been wronged uh, by PSA bringing a lawsuit. So like the Savoy lawsuit, that's that's your potential oversight. And unfortunately, you know, well, fortunately or unfortunately, it doesn't look like it's going very well. So wrong, it's it, it the oversight test. Wrong guy, wrong guy leading the hobby on that one. Yeah. Um, behind the tank says, I would think that the term estimate would be an easy out for the grading company's negligence and uh, negligence or just missing their 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 target uh, return dates. I, I definitely think that, um, and I would have to look at it as would anybody, but they're, they obviously have language built into their terms on on grading that allows them to miss their 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 turnaround time. So there's, I can't see there being legs under any claim against that. I, I just don't think they would have exposed, left themselves exposed like that. Okay. Um, Eric S. What about, uh, we're not going to, what does that say before I throw it up there? <laughs> yeah, we're not, we're not going to put that one up. Eric S. That's just a little bit too accusatory at this point in time. Um, okay, let's uh, let, let's totally switch, Paul. We're we're past the two hour mark. I'm willing to keep going. If you are, you, how's yeah. your time? Yeah, no, let's let, let's keep going. All right, let's go. Let, let's okay, good. Um, let's talk about the. So we're, now, guys, if you're watching and you, you tuned in for Paul uh, to learn to hear all about the legal issues in the hobby, we are now we are now ending that segment of the show. I'm not sending you away. I'm just letting you know, full being fully transparent. We're now going to. Uh, going to talk about some other just miscellaneous topics so please do stick around and we're glad to have you and again welcome if you just got here please subscribe to the youtube channel sports cards live every saturday night i go live with a guest and we talk about awesome things in the hobby i'm going to throw up the banner uh, the ticker right now with upcoming episodes uh quickly go through them next next saturday tyler nethercott who's a vp with sports card investor and is Heavily involved in their market movers tool. March 27th, Billy Celio, product manager from Upper Deck, will be joining me. And just scheduled uh, yesterday for, I believe it's April the 3rd, is Tim Getch, the founder and CEO of ComC, will be joining me and we will be discussing the issues, uh, the hard issues that they've been going through. And we're going to hear right from the CEO and founder on April, sorry, April the 3rd, yep about what's, uh, what is going on and what are they doing about all the challenges that they are having. I'm looking forward to that. And then the week after, it's not on the ticker, the week after, 
Ken Golden from Golden Auctions will be sitting right where Paul is, and we're going to talk about everything going on at Golden Auctions. And just to let you know, the show, we are booked all the way through about the middle of May at this point. So we got lots of shows. We are not slowing down, still coming. And the quality of guests just is uh, remaining quite, quite phenomenal, if I might say so myself. Okay, Paul, you run uh, this tournament. I, get, I think we can call it a tournament on Twitter. You call it the Hobby Annoyances Tournament. So if anybody isn't following Paul on Twitter yet, here's his Twitter handle yet again. Paul, tell us what this thing is and who, what, what annoyance won the tournament last time and who, where are we at this time? Sure. So uh, in 2020 was the first time I ran this tournament and it was because, you know, there are a lot of issues that everybody, uh, a lot of annoyances that are out there with 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 the hobby, whether it's, you know, uh, being on eBay and seeing somebody type in PSA 10 question mark, question mark, question mark for an ungraded card or, you know, there, there's so many annoyances that are out there. I thought it would be fun to put together a field of 64. Uh, right around you know March and uh, go through and see what was the most annoying uh, you know thing out there in the hobby. Um, last year, 2020, uh, what won was uh, trimmed cards. Uh, this year, so um, I had a lot of suggestions for additional uh, annoyances. So this year for 2021, we had I, I believe 24 uh, play-in contestants to see if they could even get into the field of 64. And from the field of 64, this year we had the previous champion trimmed cards versus bots. And bots beat trimmed cards by a mile. <laughs> so right now the thing that's annoying collectors the most is bots. And we had a, you know, a lot of really fun entrants in there. I thought this year uh, retail hoarders and uh, flippers, I thought for sure that was going to win because there's so many pictures of people's, you know, 10 deep in the card aisle, sitting there with their chairs, making sure nobody else gets any cards. I thought for sure that it was their year, but uh, bots sent them home in the semifinals and then bots won it all. So <laughs> the hobby is spoken. Bots are the most annoying issue in the hobby right now versus trimmed cards, which was, a you know, you said lost by a long shot this time. What I find interesting is that, and I, you know, there's so much, content out there about retail right now and how retail is a big problem in the hobby the issue i have with that just as my where i how i approach the hobby not with respect to sports cards live just as a collector and slash investor is that retail the issues around retail and maybe i'm wrong on this so fill someone fill me in if i'm not seeing something here but the issues around retail only impact the current year's cards that's all that's impacted is the current year's card. The hobby is 130 years old already. There's so many other issues in the hobby that are pervasive across all years, like card trimming, like shill bidding, like all these other problems. But people are worried about bots buying up basketball cards on Panini's yeah. website. That's your biggest problem in the hobby. Yeah, I think. I mean, maybe that's who's answering your your who's playing in in in. Sorry, who's responding or voting in the tournament? But is that really the biggest issue in the hobby? And maybe it is because it's important as far as new collectors and you know pumping new money, keeping the card companies alive. But what are your what are your thoughts, Paul, based on what I just said? I think there's a lot of recency bias uh, in here because uh, you know bots have been you know as, as a Project 2020 collector. Uh, while I am not interested in collecting the uh, APs. 
there is daily complaints that the APs are sold out within a second of them popping up. APs, um, APs being the artist proofs that are, are limited to 20 cards each and the bots try and snag them up early, just so we're clear. Right. Right. And so uh, and it's happening again with Project 70, where those cards originally were sold for uh, 90, I think, ninety nine dollars by tops. But then they would be flipped that same day for three hundred dollars. Uh, so, you know, I think because you have a recency bias with it, but you also have somebody you know making a lot of money really quickly <laughs> off such cards. I think that's you know one of those things that affected them. But it's really you know from looking at the entrance and uh, what, what did best, there definitely is. It's more focused on uh, eBay uh, complaints uh, or complaints that have popped up uh, over the last years. Uh, some of my you know cards you know I thought would go better would be. Uh, you know, fake autographs. I thought that would do better or sloppy autographs. Um, there's there's a lot of cards, you know, a lot of issues like that, that I exclusive licenses with leagues, exclusive licenses with players. But those were uh, weeded out and, you know, some of them didn't even make it to the final, the, to the final eight, let alone the final four. Right. Yeah. Okay. But well, it's a, but it's a, it's a, it's a fun, it's a, it's a fun tournament. I'm going to do it uh, every year. Uh, I try and do it, get it, get it all done before March. And so if anybody has any additional uh, suggestions, I think next year is looking that we might have uh, 40 play in games before we even get to the field of 64. So I'll have to figure out a way to speed that up. Maybe have a two or three, three matches a day instead of just two matches a day, just to somehow get through it and not do it for a whole year. Plenty of annoyances in our hobby. That is for sure. But let's not let them outweigh the benefits of the hobby that brings us joy. I know for me, you know, um, even if I'm annoyed with something in my regular life, I can just sort of look at my cards or think about them. And even for those few seconds, you you find the hobby, you get some hobby peace, hobby yeah. peace of mind sort of thing. A couple of suggestions came in here. Uh, Big Eunice says eBay return policy, a number one seed. Toa says uh, second to bots is backdoor retail, which is another retail-related um, mm -hmm. issue. Uh, Global says grading turnaround times are my big issue at the moment. Uh, Hockey Guy says, did any of the entries surprise either of you how far they made it in the bracket? Yeah, well, bots was my big surprise because uh, again, it, it, like you're saying, it's bots are really only affecting the current product, and it's not even the. It's some products will you know out be sold out because of bots, or sometimes you'll miss certain cards. Uh, so I mean, bots don't affect me. So that's that's what really surprised me about how well they performed. And, and again, I thought it was going to be a retail. Uh, I thought retail hoarders and flippers. I thought that was going to be the, the the big winner this year, but nope, it wasn't. Yeah, they they don't they don't affect me either, but I'm I'm sensitive to it for those that it does. Uh, I like Bill's comment: bots voting for themselves. That's how they won. <laughs> it's pretty good. Comment of the night, right there. I love it. That's hilarious. Uh, Chris says bots are prevalent in all collectibles at this point. Pretty much any limited release or coveted item has bots snapping online listings up within minutes and seconds. So definitely an issue out there. There are, and there are there are there are ways to uh, get around bots though, or I mean to actually eliminate bots like a Top Shot. I think that's done a very good job of uh, eliminating bots or even people with multiple accounts uh, purchasing cards. So there are ways to address them. I just think manufacturers really don't want to address them because they're they're getting sales. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think they'd sell anyway. So I wonder about that. But there, the question did come up earlier, and it was off topic at the time, but now that we're kind of uh, within this world of technology, there's all this talk right now about NFTs. 
top shot, certainly leading the way as far as uh, NFTs in in uh, in the sports collecting world goes. Do you have any thoughts on it? Are you involved in NFTs? Are you involved in Top Shot? Do you think NFTs are here to stay? Do you think Top Shot has legs? Give us your thoughts. You know, I think NFTs, uh, I think they're here to stay. I think it's a very interesting con concept. Now, to me, legally looking at it that way, or as a you know, as a potential business looking at it, I think they're they're interesting. As a collector, I have no interest in most NFTs. I mean, I buy cards so I can display them. That's my the number one way that I view things. And you know, for the NFTs that I've seen, at least in the trading card world, uh, I you know I I can't really display those or show off my collection to people. Now I have seen some NFTs that make more sense to me, and this is more in the art world where it's not necessarily a art print. It's actually a you know it, there's actually movement involved in the uh, in the NFT. So you know it's kind of a, a a a little short or something like that. That to me makes more sense, especially if you can guarantee exclusivity that nobody else uh, can see. Um, I understand uh, the argument. You know, I mean, Top Shot really. I'm, I'm just baffled by uh, collectors on Top Shot um, that you know you'd want to have a uh, to own a clip. Uh, especially when there's the, it's, there's that clip can be seen on you know ESPN or on YouTube or seen somewhere else. I mean there there it really isn't exclusivity for what you see. There's exclusivity with you know the serial numbering or the actual NF, the actual token itself, but not necessarily on you know what you see and what pleases you. But that being said, you know I understand the argument of well what's to stop you from just going and printing a card out? You can print a card that looks exactly like a card. It just doesn't have the austerity of the actual card. So I understand it. And I've talked to my kids about it. My kids are, my sons are uh, 14 and 12 and they would definitely collect something online. You know, something that that's like that. So it's a, it's a future market. It's an emergence market. And uh, I'm fascinated to watch it. And I, I really want to see where it goes. And, you know, some of the things I was thinking about is, you know, I think it would really help, um, you know, charities or uh, organizations that require donations. I mean, could you imagine NASA uh, offering, uh, you know, NFTs of, you know, you get the exclusive looks of these videos of Mars right now. I mean, they're, they're just the, the, the future of what you can get with this is it's, it's, it's pretty amazing. I, I want to see where it goes. I don't think I'm going to be buying though. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's an interesting uh, perspective that you just laid out there. And it's a, it's a great way to fundraise for both charitable and non-charitable, you know, or, public type initiatives in terms of a NASA sort of that. Very interesting. Very interesting. I um, mean, you know, what, as far as Top Shot goes, the, one of the big issues that traditional uh, tangible sports card collectors have is that they, they think that, you know, or they're worried, considering where the market's gone in the last year, two years, that, hey, this thing is out there now, this Top Shot thing's out there, and it's taking money out of the hobby, out of the sports card hobby, and putting it into the Top Shot uh, environment. And, you know, my my response to that is like if I if I was a top shot millionaire right now, I would I would be cashing out because I don't know how stable it is. If I could and I understand there's obviously challenges with getting your money out of the system, but I'd be cashing out and put it out and, and actually the opposite would happen. I'd be putting it into sports cards. Yeah. Because it's yeah. tangible. It's it's just it's to me, it's a more reliable asset. So 
I could actually see Topshop potentially benefiting the hobby versus taking away from the hobby. If some of these guys that got in early or even got in more recently, make a lot of money in it, pull it out and buy cards. Cause I don't, I think that there's way fewer people out there who are going to want to collect these moments versus collect sports cards with the exception being potentially people like your kids who are younger and, and speak that language a little bit more fluently than guys like us, the guys our age do or our vintage type of thing. So, but again, I could see it maybe, and maybe it's just a, maybe it just balances up. Maybe it's a zero sum game at the end of the day. Some, some people are going to go out of sports cards and into top shot and whatever the other deals Dapper Labs makes with NHL, MLB, NFL, soccer, whoever. But then you're going to have the people that are going to take the money out and put it into sports cards because, hey, I just turned $1,000 into $100,000. <laughs> now I can go buy myself a Michael Michael Jordan PSA 9 rookie or two of them and uh, cost me 1000 bucks like it would have in 2008. So, Yeah, one, one of the questions somebody uh, asked me was, you know, is Panini, does Panini have some legal recourse here, you know, against Top Shot because, or the NBA? Because, you know, uh, Panini has the exclusive uh, with the NBA. Uh, is this, you know, chipping away into Panini's earnings? Uh, I mean, that turns on the contracts that the companies have with each other. So, you know, I, I'm not privy to those. I don't know what it is. But I, you know, if it if if Top Shot is eating into Panini's, uh, uh, you know, sales, they'd be the one to know. And I, I don't really see that happening because, you know, I'm seeing, you know, Panini product released at ever higher prices <laughs> on the market. I mean, every time everything, everything's released, everyone's like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe it's that. And then it sells out. So I, yeah. I don't think Top Shot's hurting Panini. I don't think the money going into Top Shot's not going into other aspects of the hobby. I, uh, you know, I, I think, you know, like you said, I think there are people probably like with Project 2020. They got did well in Project 2020 cards, sold those, and went and bought the original cards. Right, that are out there. So that's that's what I see happening more, uh, especially to the extent that the people in Top Shot come from sports cards because you don't just. You don't just drop sports cards and go into Top Shot if you're a true sports card guy, gal. You know, I yeah. don't think. Um, Global says, I think once you're able to get your money out of Top Shot easier, it will die down a little. Thoughts on that? I mean, maybe because it seems like easy money right now if you can get your money back. So will it die down? Maybe. I, I don't know. I don't really. I'm not sure. I think it could be the opposite. Once you can get money out easier, and uh, I mean, then you're like more likely to put more money in. One of the reasons I haven't even looked at it is because of the long wait list you have to get your money out. That always worries me. So uh, I would think the more liquid it is, the better invest. I mean, that's what you look for as an investment. How liquid is it? The more liquid yeah. it is, the better an investment it is. And the more other people are going to find out that hey, you can now get your money out. Okay, well now now you're now that that barrier to entry for people is going to be is going to disappear and they're going to be willing to take a shot at it because they know they can eventually get their money out probably quicker than they can right now so that makes sense to me peter says the thing is if you turned your hundred dollars into 100k somebody is left holding the bag if the market drops out there has to be a loser well yes but no one's left holding the bag until the market drops out so but there's always going to be a loser in these things, right? I mean, uh, Project it, 2020 with the Memorial Day Massacre. I mean, we, uh, there's going to be a Top Shot Memorial Day. It might not be Memorial Day, but there might be a Memorial Day Massacre it's coming at some point. Yeah, could happen. And uh, But I think, yeah, so, you know, if you turned your 100 into 100,000 and then it came back down to 100, 
you're just kicking yourself for not selling when it was at 100. But if you did sell it for 100, the person that bought it for 100, I mean, in a way, I don't have much pity for that because it is such a, there. it's just everything about it is risky just because it's intangible. I think everything about it is risky. Not to say that these things won't hold their value. I don't know. I don't understand the underlying technology enough. I have a bit of an idea about how the blockchain works with hashes and all that, but I don't necessarily understand how you, you skin a token with a with a moment and how that all that all works. But in any event, it's interesting. I hope to learn more about it. I'm sure a lot of people do too. Uh, Toa says, I agree. If you're able to get your money out, the more money you'll reinvest back into it. Yeah, that, that makes perfect sense to me for sure. For sure. Paul, let's just uh, talk a bit about what you're up to in terms of, you know, you've mentioned a bit, but you collected Project 2020. What are you doing with Project 70? Yeah, you know, so Project 2020, I really, I really enjoyed Project 2020. I uh, ended up collecting uh, two players, uh, Trout and Gooden, and then I also collected uh, three artists, uh, Beck, uh, JK5, and Ermsey. Uh, so uh, when Project 70 uh, came around, I was, uh, you know, somewhat excited, somewhat concerned, uh, because I spent more money on Project 2020 than I, you know, intended. Uh, I'm less excited about Project 70. I, I'm still uh, collecting, uh, collecting it, um, collecting Ermsey. I'm collecting JK5, and uh, I'm collecting Alex Pardee. Uh, I really like what he's doing as a uh, new uh, artist. Uh, but other than that, I really see, um, you know, it, it seems almost stale to me, uh, except, except for the artists that I like. Uh, I'm not seeing anything really that's blowing me away. And that's what I liked about Project 2020. Uh, it was something that I'd never seen before. And, you know, for Project 70, we're seeing the same thing we hadn't seen before, but now it's year two. So I think, you know, I, and again, everyone's only released their first cards. Uh, a lot of the new artists are just learning the ropes. Uh, I would like to see more people taking risks and, uh, you know, pushing, pushing the edge, pushing the edges on this. And that's why I think the Alex Pardee card, uh, which is, you know, turning, you know, Akuna into a monster. I mean, it's, it's, it's a great looking card. It's a great looking concept. And it was a big risk. Um, I, I, I hope to see more like that uh, in the future. Or otherwise, I'm not going to spend nearly as much as I thought I would. So how many cards is that? I, I believe it's like a thousand or a thousand and fifty cards. Project seventy, like is that is that too many? That's way too many. Uh, I I mean I was an avid Project Twenty Twenty collector, and I can honestly say I that last hundred cards I was burned out. I was just going through the motions. Um, you know, I was committed to certain sets, so I just wanted to complete the sets. I wasn't happy doing it. I wasn't happy getting them. I I really suffered burnout, and that was at three hundred. There's an, you know, potentially an additional 700 cards to go through uh, for this set. Uh, so I, I think burnout's a very real issue. You know, having suffered it, I think it's a very real potential issue. And we'll see where it goes, especially since I think a lot of the product, this is it's not blowing me away. So um, we'll see where it goes. But I mean, I, I, I think the print runs will you know, start to get lower. Uh, as the print runs get lower, it may have, you know, that, you know, kind of a reverse Project 2020, where Project 2020 started low, and those are the most valuable cards. Well, maybe Project 70 at some point dips low on some of the cards, and then everybody gets interested because they like, you know, low print runs, and then it skyrockets and goes from there. 
Yeah, you know, if you're loyal to these projects, the TOPS projects, uh, you're now, you know, by the end of Project 70, you're going to be up to over 1,400 cards. And they all come in and they'll come with the sticker sealing the magnetic holder. I mean, I don't know if anybody can lift that, let alone where you, where do you store a thousand cards in, in, in magnet? I mean, I'm sure a lot of people have that, but that's, a, that's just a big addition to your collection if you need to have them all. Um, what, about, you know, back when Project 2020 was really hot last summer, one of the things that I was happy about was that I thought, well, hey, this is great. There's these 20 artists. They all have at least 100,000 followers on social media platforms. This has to grow the hobby. Some of these people are going to research and look into other areas of the hobby besides just Tops Project 2020. Do you have any feel for whether or not the hobby retained any of those artist collectors versus Tops and baseball card collectors? I, I don't know about the artist collectors. I do know uh, Project 2020 brought a lot of collectors who stopped uh, back into the hobby. Uh, you know, kind of like me when I got back into the hobby, I, you know, was out for a while and then I saw, hey, look, there's cards with autographs, there's cards with relics. I'd never seen that before and it brought me back in. I think that's, you know, the consequence of Project 2020 is it brought in a lot of people who had quit collecting and brought them back in. I don't know about how many artists, you know, how many people that followed the art crowd then crossed over to do cards. Uh, you, you don't really see that much on social media about that. Uh, it's more so the uh, old retired collectors, you know, coming back into it and, and, and collecting again. Yeah. Okay. Makes sense to me. Um, last topic I have on the list. I mean, I've got two left actually. One being just because it's new since we were, since you were last on the show and it's out there are the uh, the fractional ownership companies. There's several of them now. Um, I know you're not that involved in them, but even from a legal perspective, do you think that the, and if you don't have an answer, it's totally understandable, Paul, but one of the issues people have with the fractional ownership company is the, is the regulation over it. And do they actually own the card and what's gonna happen when they sell and who's deciding if they sell or they don't and all these different things. My understanding is that there is some level of SEC regulation over these companies. Do you have any insight or thoughts on that? And if these things, if, if this new business model in our hobby uh, is le not legal, but is the regulation over it going to be enough to keep it where it's going to exist and carry forward and evolve into what will be a big part of our hobby, our hobby moving forward? You know, I think it, it opens up a, another it's it's like investing in any other properties out there. Uh, you know, in, instead of investing in, say, a timeshare or uh, something else, you're, you're, you're investing in a asset uh, and that asset could be sold later on. It just happens to be a card um, or, or a collection of cards. Uh, you know, I've, I've been asked by some people to review uh, contracts that they would have with uh, companies that are that are in this venue, and uh, you know they're they're confusing contracts. I mean, it, it's basically you're, I mean, you're going to own partial ownership of a security in a card, but you're never going to see the card, you're never going to touch the card, and that's that's part of the fun of cards. Uh, so. They're going to I think it's going to be there because, uh, you know, you often see that, you know, trading cards, the high value trading cards have outperformed the stock market. They are a very viable asset. So from that standpoint, whether uh, fractional ownership was designed for card collectors or 
investors, just plain old investors, uh, I, I think they're going to they're going to stick around for quite a while. And I kind of like the uh, aggregator model of, you know, fra I guess it's kind of a combination of fractional ownership and aggregation. It's just you'll have a uh, basically a fund go out and buy as much product as they can. And then ultimately knowing that they're going to turn around and sell that off for 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 a profit. So I think these unique ways to invest in the hobby, I think they're there um, for someone like me who's more of a collector than an investor. That's not necessarily good news because it's going to drive prices up. Uh, it already up. is. Yeah. And so that's, you know, and I think we're seeing that with, you know, new boxes and new what new cards are costing. Um, and but I think it's 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 here to stay. It's it's, it's not going to go away. Yeah, I, I agree. I don't think it's going away either. And um, as far as regulation goes, you know, it's just nice to know that the SEC is overseeing it to. You know, I don't know how and how much you know how much time they're giving to it, but they're that they're at least complying. What what do you want to say? So there, so potentially there is. So in order, there are ways that you don't. Well, you have to comply with security laws, but not necessarily the SEC. Depending on the number of investors that you have or the value of the investment, there are exemptions to make sure you don't have to comply with the SEC laws. You just have to comply with other security laws that are out there. So okay. some of the uh, fractional ownership, I think they try to limit the number of investors uh, in order to do that. Um, you know, so we'll if it we'll see. I mean, it's a it's a difference between a uh, you know a penny stock and uh, a real stock. Um, you know, you, you know what you're getting uh, when you when you get involved with a, a with a smaller one rather than a, a larger fractional ownership. All right, all right. Well, thank you for that. I'm going to bring up a comment that is from, from about half an hour ago. My buddy Mike at Eastridge. He says, Paul, even though it wasn't in a lawsuit, do you have the 2007 Upper Deck Sweet Spot Michael? Beisner card that Upper Deck had to recall all unsold product per Major League Baseball. So um, I'm not sure exactly on that card, but I do know uh, uh, there 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 was a, a lawsuit there uh, that had to do with uh, Upper Deck taking card you know taking some cards back. And uh, you know when it came to um, I don't know if that's the right lawsuit that I'm thinking of. I'm thinking of the MLB uh, lawsuit uh, where MLB where Upper Deck came out with cards uh, without any MLB, allegedly without any MLB logos, but you know, just an arm crossed or whatever it was. Um, for that product, yes, I own that complete set. <laughs> so <laughs> that was, uh, that, that I, it was involved in a lawsuit and I couldn't turn that one down. So I definitely got it. I don't know if UD was required to recall all the product, uh, uh, but uh, you know, it, yeah. I do, I do own it. <laughs> right on, right on. Here's here's a great comment from God Sports Car. It says, "Sorry, I'm late, Jeremy and Paul." <laughs> <laughs> what did I miss? <laughs> God, it's great to have you. But yeah, we are uh, over two and a half hours in. So uh, welcome to the show. Welcome to the show. Great to have you as always. Uh, Toa very nicely says, "Thanks for the great live night. Learned a lot. Enjoyed it. Hit the like button, guys. Thank you so much, Toa Hang. Great to have you as always." JJ, love this comment. Thank you so much. Props for keeping your content fresh and interesting. Nothing worse than the same repetitive bleep. I appreciate that, JJ. Thank you very much. Well, look, Paul, I mean, the last topic I have, it simply says the market in general, because it's been nine months since you've been on the show. The hobby's blown up. I mean, we've kind of alluded to some things here and there. And I'm gonna, we're going to kind of finish off the episode now uh, we'll, we'll wrap things up so i'll call for final comments from the from the chat guys anything 
last minute comments, questions, throw them in there because we're going to wind this down. So while you're doing that, Paul, the market in general, it's blown up. What are you seeing from St. Louis, Missouri right now in terms of how crazy the prices are and, you know, just the, the pent up frustration the hobby has with no card shows and now there are in Dallas and I mean there's more card shows than just in Dallas and there's a few this weekend throughout the United States but what do you think of the state of the market right now yeah it, it's it's unfortunately it has priced me out of a lot of the uh, cards that I would like to collect um you know er, earlier we alluded that uh I started collecting Dwight Gooden was what drove me to collecting in 1986 and uh unfortunately because of that uh I did it at the expense of Michael Jordan um, in fact, I did trade some uh, Fleer Jordans for uh, others, Dwight's Goodens. So I have a healthy binder of Dwight Gooden rookies that are, you know, valueless and uh, a lot of remorse for the Jordans that I, you know, traded away. Uh, you know, and I still don't have a Fleer 86 Jordan. And, um, you know, I'm at the point where I would very much so like to add one to my collection. And the only ones I've added are, uh, you know, fake ones, reprints, fake reprints, because there's been lawsuits involved, you know, like the Spence lawsuit. Uh, so I, I do have some fake Jordans in my collection, but I don't have a real Jordan. And it's a shame because I would very much like to have one, but I'm I am priced out of the market on that, and it's it's I'm seeing it you know across in other areas too, like with Project 2020, I wanted to uh, you know I, I do have a Trout rookie, I do have a Gooden rookie, so I was able to pair those. I wanted to do a, a Ricky Henderson uh, collection uh, and a Cal Ripken collection also, but. Uh, you know, the market, again, has priced me out of getting those, you know, those cards for a realistic price. So it's, 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 I know eventually, well, you'd think eventually it'll come back down and I, I'd like to, uh, you know, buy low, but I'm certainly not buying high right now. I'm, bu I'm buying more new product than I am buying older product. So that's, you know, the biggest effect I've seen um, and, you know, other people have seen here. Uh, but I would like to go back and, you know, buy some of the, you know, the true tested products that, you know, are aging well, you know, products I should have picked up uh, earlier and I didn't. Yeah, no, I think a lot of us have that exact same, uh, you know, hindsight right now where it's just 2020. <laughs> That's really yeah. something up, right? We could, if we could all go back, but hey, we cannot. So hopefully some of you have picked up some great cards along the way and you're experiencing some benefits of the state of the market as it is right now. And, uh, but I know all of us wish we could turn back the clock. That is for sure. So, all right, man. Well, listen, I think we can uh, wrap this up. We've uh, gone on quite a long time. So thank you for all your time tonight, Paul. Always super, always for the second time, super interesting to have you. And we'll we'll have you back and I, maybe we'll make it every nine months or so. Seems to be a good pace for now. So we'll, yeah. we'll look, look to do that again down the road. Uh, so again, really appreciate your time couple comments that have come in. Uh, Hockey Guy says, be sure to like the video and subscribe. Be sure to follow Paul on Twitter too. So I'm going to throw that up right now for everybody there. Again, it's been up, but if you haven't seen it, at Paul underscore Lesko, that is where Paul really does most of his social media. So check him out on Twitter. If you are not yet following myself on Instagram, Twitter, if you haven't joined the Facebook group for Sports Cards Live, please go ahead and do so. Just put my name in as the, as the reference. And if you are on Clubhouse, be sure to give me a follow and I will likely follow you back at Sports Cards Live. That's an, a fun new uh, 
social media platform that uh, that is really starting to take off, and it is by invitation only right now as they as they ramp up and scale their 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 app. So be cognizant of that, and it's only available on iPhone at this time. No, not available on Android yet. What do you use, Paul? Do you use iPhone or Android? I use iPhone and I was invited to Clubhouse. So I have not really checked it out or learned too much about it, but uh, I, I am on there. But uh, yeah, Twitter, that's where I live right now. That's where you live. Paul Cashman, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Great to have you. Big Unit says, thank you, Jeremy and Paul. Great show. Thank you, Big Unit, for joining us. And guys, I guess that's going to be about it. I'm kind of hesitant. There is no after hours tonight, guys. This is it for this Saturday. So I, I, ah, there's a, yeah, rock, rock latex has any after hours coming up. So just to be honest with everybody, I, you know, I didn't book a guest for after hours. I just kind of, the, the week went by really quick. I was super busy at work this week and it just kind of escaped me. So there is no guest lined up. So I'm just going to say, no, we won't do an after hours this week, but we will definitely do one. We have, we have after hours guests lined up for the next two Saturdays. So be sure to check those out. And again, um, I'm going to throw up right now the upcoming episode. So next Saturday, Tyler Nethercott from Market Movers, followed by Billy Celio from Upper Deck, followed by Tim Getch from ComC, followed by Ken Golden from Golden Auctions. So a great lineup coming up. All right, Paul, thank you so much. No, thanks and, for having uh, me on. <laughs> well, final comments rolling in. Lee Haskins, thank you so much. Bob Lewis, great to have you. Thank you. Mike Zier, okay, music cards next week then. Oh, I did mention, maybe I'd show, I've got my music cards in. Okay, I'll tell you what, guys. I'll tell you what. We will end this show, and I will start up another broadcast on the channel. It'll just be me, unless somebody out there wants to join. I, I'm going to put it, okay, totally changing the plan here. Paul, thanks for bearing with me. Totally changing the plan, guys. We will run in after hours. I will start a new broadcast. Give me, give me 10 minutes or so, not even. Give me five minutes to just fill up my water, take a bio break, and um, and we'll come back. We'll come back. If there's enough viewers, we'll stick it out. If not, we'll just uh, we'll just go to bed, I guess. But yeah, calling an audible. I appreciate it. Thank you, Latrell Spreewell, for joining us. Big Unit says, instead of after hours, just do a review of coming to America. I did watch that. Watch that with my wife. Yep. Bobby Baseball, thank you so much. AZ Brothers, thank you. Have a good night to you too. And um, okay, that's it. I'll be back in about five minutes, guys. Paul, thanks again, man. Really appreciate no, thanks it. Thanks for having me on. I really enjoyed this. Okay, hang tight one sec. Everybody else, good night. If not, we'll see you in a few minutes. And if not, we'll see you next week. Have a great week ahead if you don't join us on After Hours.